I think probably the best thing about the radio days was that as an actor you could stay fluent. You were in and out, the job was done. The ease and speed of radio, the absence of commitment, the absence of time spent, you could have all the thrill and all the challenge of a full performance with four rehearsals and the air show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't spend eight hours driving to and from location and getting in and out of wardrobe and waiting for the young actors to learn how to do their parts. This is WSM in Nashville, and this is The Big Sound. As the U.S. began May of 1954, there was word that a new Soviet bomber had the ability to reach the United States. It was displayed for the public for the first time at the Moscow May Day Parade. On May 7th, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu would end in a French defeat. U.S. Secretary of State John Foster Dulles declared Vietnam non-essential to security in Southeast Asia. The U.S. would not intervene for France. And as several massive U.S. fishing vessels were sinking off the coast of Alaska, the Boeing 707 was being released after two years in development. Now, before you ask, what's this all about, we'd like to tell you. This is about a radio station in Nashville, Tennessee. A station that was just given the 1953-1954 Variety Show Management Award as the outstanding music station in the United States. With a minimum of fuss and a maximum of music, WSM would like to acknowledge that award here and now. And we do it with the big sound, the sound of our singers, musicians, and music. Love is just around the corner. Any cozy little corner. On May 1st, NBC affiliate WSM signed on with the big sound. WSM is a 50,000-watt clear channel station located in Nashville, Tennessee. Founded by the National Life and Accident Insurance Company, the station's call sign stands for We Shield Millions. WSM first signed on on October 5, 1925. The next month, on November 28th, the WSM barn dance took to the air for the first time. On December 10, 1927, the program's host, Judge George D. Hay, referred to the show for the first time as the Grand Ole Opry. The Opry began running coast to coast on Saturday evenings in 1939. The show moved to the Ryman Auditorium in 1943. As it developed in importance, so did the city of Nashville, which became America's country music capital. By 1954, WSM was considered the outstanding music station in the country. That October 2nd, a teenage Elvis Presley would have his only Opry performance. The times, they were a-changing. Tonight, we'll dive in for a closer look. Love is just around the corner, and I'm around you, around you. Hi, folks, this is Buddy Hall, transcribing for the more than 200 entertainers here at WSM. The people who sing and play the music. The people who make the big sound. A footnote. 
The big sound of WSM is not a thing of sheer blast. It's quality and it's quantity. Last year, WSM fed hundreds of programs to the networks. Top quality jazz, folk music, the classics, choral groups, and the hits of the day. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 127. My name is James Scully. Tonight, we keep on with our look at 1954 by picking up in May, during one of the most important months of the decade. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Once I Had a Secret Love, as performed by Dolores Watson, May 1st, 1954, on WSM's The Big Sound. She was a WSM mainstay in the mid-century. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. New York radio back then probably was a little bit more flexible because they were trying to borrow people from the theater, from the stage, you know, when they could. But I'm only guessing as to why it was different. I had no difficulty getting into commercial radio in New York because it was never an option. I was dragged across, still in uniform, Hmm. from Air Force radio to civilian radio, still doing both, you know, doing military and civilian shows in the same day, in the same week, still in uniform, waiting for points to pile up, the war long over. Because, as it happened, my immediate superior in the Air Force, radio propaganda unit number one, was in commercial radio, had been in commercial radio, We had been at school together in New Haven. We had done broadcasts together before the war on the Yankee Network in New Haven, Connecticut, with him playing the piano and me reading words. And then I found him uh, 
as my director producer. He was a captain, and I was closest they could get me to civilian. They kept on tearing stripes off my sleeves as fast as I could sew them up. And uh, we went right across from Air Force Radio to the Carrington Playhouse. Elaine Carrington was the queen of soap opera writers in daytime soaps and had gotten a nighttime hour-long melodrama that would have been the radio equivalent of Dallas. And we had it on the air, I think it was CBS. And all of us who were in uniform were in there doing the Carrington Playhouse. So I never had any difficulty cracking New York radio. Everett Sloan, bless him, wherever he is. People like Everett Sloan, I mean, only a few of us. He would do anything. You go see Citizen Kane and see what he did in Citizen Kane. The thing is that they could function in, uh, in the theater, in film. Oh, sure. As well as, as radio. All versatile yeah, actors. Yeah. They were really actors. Not just radio actors, but no, actors. No. Oh, no. There's no such thing as a right. radio yeah. actor. Yeah. That is yeah. the final pejorative term. Right. But it's certainly, <laughs> yeah, you certainly could get stereotyped into that if you allowed yourself. But, but so many went from here to the West Coast. Yeah. I'll never forget the night Richard Widmark said goodnight, hi, after the repeat broadcast. And he took the red eye and he went to do the film for Fox where he pushed the old lady down the stairs. <laughs> and he still is there for me, certainly, and I mm -hmm. talked to him. I recently did a series with him for The Voice of America. Mm -hmm. These were wonderful men and women. Just remembering them, I'm grateful to both of you for bringing these memories back. Everett Sloan was born in New York City on October 1st, 1909. At the age of seven, he played Puck, of Shakespeare's Midsummer Night's Dream and decided to become an actor. In 1927, he joined a theater company. He made his New York stage debut in 1928. Today has published the most comprehensive treatise on Americanisms to date, the book whose previous editions were read in England, translated into German. In the 1930s, Sloan was appearing on the March of Time. It was there he met a young Orson Welles. Wells hired Sloan to be part of his Mercury Theater. He moved from New York City to Los Angeles after Wells signed his contract with RKO. Sloan had a prominent role in Citizen Kane. In the 1940s, he worked on both coasts, guest starring in radio on Inner Sanctum Mysteries, The Shadow, The Mysterious Traveler, and in films such as The Lady from Shanghai, Journey into Fear, and Prince of Foxes. By 1953, he was being featured on TV and starring on radio in the 21st Precinct as Captain Frank Kennelly. The 21st Precinct debuted on July 7, 1953 over WCBS in New York. It put the listener into the drama from the opening phone call until the final report. In May of 1954, it was airing Wednesdays at 8.30 p.m. against The Great Gildersleeve on NBC. Starring with Sloan was Ken Lynch as Lieutenant Matt King and Harold Stone as Sergeant Waters. John Ives produced and Stanley Niss directed. 
21st Precinct, Sergeant Waters. Uh, wait a minute, lady. Talk slower. I can't understand you. A man in the hall? What's he doing there? Yeah? Yeah? Was he drunk? You are in the muster room at the 21st Precinct, the nerve center. A call is coming through. You will follow the action taken pursuant to that call from this minute until the final report is written in the 124 room at the 21st Precinct. All right. I'll send an officer over right away. Well, don't worry about it. He'll be there right away. He'll take care of it. Yes, ma'am. 21st Precinct. It's just lines on a map of the city of New York. Most of the 173,000 people wedged into the nine-tenths of a square mile between Fifth Avenue and the East River wouldn't know if you asked them that they lived or worked in the 21st. Whether they know it or not, the security of their homes, their persons, and their property is the job of the men of the 21st Precinct. The 21st, 160 patrolmen, 11 sergeants, and four lieutenants of whom I'm the boss. My name is Kennelly, Frank Kennelly. I'm captain in command of the 21st. I was working my night tour, 4 p.m. to 8 a.m. It had been a quiet night in the precinct, and after I turned out the platoon for the 12 to 8, as superior officer on duty in the division during the night, I was called to the 23rd precinct to supervise the patrol force on duty at a three-alarm fire near the approach to the Triborough Bridge. I was still out of the precinct at 2.10 a.m. when patrolman William F. Coley, assigned to post number four, approached a call box on York Avenue to make his hourly ring. Patrolman Coley, Box 31. Hold on a second, Coley. I've got something for you. Yes, sir. Listen. Walk around the 341 there. Yeah. A party named Heel is called in. There's a drunk sleeping in the hallway. Okay, Sergeant. When you get it cleaned up, ring in again. You'll take your meal. Yes, sir. Yes? Uh, I hate to bother you, but I'm a little confused. Uh, which way is the subway station? The uh, Lexington Avenue subway? Yes, that'll be all right. That's four blocks this way and one downtown. Oh, thanks. It's all right. I got sort of mixed up. Is um, that a local or, or an express station? A local. Which way are you going? To, to Brooklyn. Well, then take the local to Grand Central, then change for the express station. Oh, thanks. Ah. Uh... Yes? Do you smoke? Yes, ma'am, but uh, not on the job. Look, officer. What? There's just one or two cigarettes smoked out of this package. I'd like to sell it to you for a nickel. Uh, madam, I Please. Told... I've got ten cents. I need fifteen to ride the subway. Oh. Please take what's in the pack of cigarettes and, and give me a nickel. It's a bargain. It's really a bargain. Look, I don't want your cigarettes, lady. You can see I'm dressed all right. I'm not a tramp. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. That's right. It's really a long, sad story. I'd rather not go into it if you don't mind. You don't have to. Do you, uh, you want to borrow a nickel? I want to sell you my cigarettes. That's not necessary. Here. You, uh, sure you have the dime? That's all I've got. Here you are. And here are your cigarettes. Oh, forget it. I, I can afford to be that generous. Where can I send it to you? Forget it. It's nothing. Oh, look, I certainly appreciate it. You, you don't know how much I appreciate it. It's all right. I know how you feel. I don't know what to say. You, you see, I'm not a tramp. It's okay, lady. 
Oh, uh, I've got a job in this building. Now, you just walk over to Lexington Avenue in downtown one block. Well, thanks a lot. It's okay. I certainly appreciate it, really. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He's on the second floor landing, passed out drunk, right outside of my door almost. Look, the downstairs door is locked. Can you press the buzzer? Uh, all right. J- just a second. Take care of him. An old man like that will lose all his self-respect. Hey, Pop. Pop, come on, wake up. Uh, what's the matter? Come on, Pop, sit up. Uh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Ashamed uh, of yourself. That's it, Pop. That's it. What are you doing here? Oh, sleeping, that's all. Just sleeping. Look, don't you know better than to get drunk in other people's hallways? Oh, I'm not drunk. I was just... Sleeping. Look, Pop, you can kid yourself, but you can't kid me. Oh, I'm not drunk. I'm 78 years old. I never had a drink in my life. Then what were you doing here? What were you doing in this hallway? I was sleeping. Can you stand up? Of course I can stand up, but... The idea. Coming into a hallway and sleeping. Well, I wanted to sleep someplace. Don't you have a home? No, not anymore. You live someplace, Pop. Where? If I lived someplace, I'd be there. I wouldn't be sleeping in the hallway. Why did you have to pick my hallway right outside of my door? I'm sorry. I didn't know it was your hallway. Any hallway had been good enough. What's your name, Pop? You called me Pop. Now, come on, will you? Pop is good enough. Look, old timer, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, and we're going to wake up the whole building. Now, what's your name, and where do you live? My name is Pop, and I don't live any place. Look, I can't stand here and waste time with you. I can take you down to the station house and we'll get it settled there. He's not drunk. What do you want to do that for? Lady, you sent for the police. I thought he was drunk. You can take me to the station house if you want to. I don't care. Look, I want to be reasonable. Just tell me your name and where you live and what you were doing here. And we'll see if we can get the whole thing straightened out. You saw what I was doing here. I was sleeping. Well, what's your name? Pop. All right. You, uh, you have a phone, don't you, Mrs. Healer. Mrs. Bertha Healer. you have a phone? Uh, yes, I have a phone. We go inside so I can ring in. Uh, yes, we can go inside. But what are you going to do with him? He wasn't drunk. I-, I was mistaken about that. Look, I don't know what to do with him. That's what I want to ring in for. Let them tell me. Patrolman Coley rang into the station house and explained the situation to Lieutenant Gorman, the desk officer on duty. He was instructed to bring the man to the station house, and for this purpose, an RMP car was sent by radio to the address. In the meantime, the fire in the 23rd precinct had been extinguished, and I returned to the 21st. It was 2.25 a.m. when I got out of the car, crossed the sidewalk, and walked up the three stone steps into the muster room of the precinct house. It is required by the manual of procedure that the commanding officer sign the blotter immediately upon leaving or entering the station house, and I went around the desk to comply. Hello, Captain. Sergeant? 21st Precinct, Sergeant Waters. Hello, Red. Captain? All right, hold on. Lieutenant? Yes? Yeah. Gay Hill is ringing in. 
A report one male at Roseville Hospital in that auto wreck. Kessler went over in the ambulance. All right, tell him to resume patrol until Kessler rings in that he's ready to be picked up. Yes, sir. Okay, Red, it's all yours. Resume patrol. Big fire up there, Captain? Yeah, Red. It uh, burned out this one building almost completely. Ran about 30 families out on the street. Lucky it's a warm night. Yeah. And uh, we had to reroute bridge traffic. Nobody hurt, was there? No, the alarm was turned in fast. Come on, Pop. Right up to the desk. Where? Where do you want me? Uh, right here, is all right? Here he is, Lieutenant. Hello, Captain. Coley? You still won't tell you his name, Coley? No, sir. Will you tell me, Pop? Well, if I wouldn't tell him, why should I tell you? What's this all about, Coley? Well, he was sleeping in the hallway, Captain. The lady who called in thought he was drunk. All right. I wasn't drunk. I never had a drink in my life. Well, uh, what were you doing there, Pop? Sleeping. Now, look, Pop, we don't want to put you in jail. Let's get it straightened out. What's your name? Well, I'm not so sure jail would be so bad. At least there's a bed in jail. The floor in that hall is kind of hard. What about your family? What about them? Where are they? Can we get in touch with them? I'd, I'd rather go to jail. That wouldn't be any problem. Sleeping in a hallway, that's disorderly conduct. Maybe you call it disorderly conduct. I was just sleeping because I was tired. How old are you? 78. I was 78 in March. Don't you have any money? Well, I've got three, four dollars. Look, don't you want to tell us your name? No, no, I thought I made that clear. Well, uh, how can we help you out? I don't know that you're trying to help me. If you are trying, I don't know that I want your help. We are trying to help you. Maybe so, but I'm still not going to tell you my name. All right, Coley. Let's see what's in his pockets. Put your hands up on the rail, Pop. Well, I don't want to let you search me. Oh, look, it's the law, Pop. We're required to search all prisoners. Well, if it's the law, I, I don't want to go against that. Oh, Lieutenant. Uh, yeah. Make it, sir. I think I saw an alarm yesterday. Missing persons report on a 78-year-old man. Did you? I think so. All right, go see if you can locate it. Yes, sir. Uh, right away, Captain. $3.88. Yeah, I was pretty close about the money. I said between 3 and $4. A pipe, some tobacco. You're not going to take that pipe away from me. I've had that 16 years. You'll get it back. Pop. One key, a door key. Well, you can throw that away. I don't know why I'm carrying it around. Well, that's all. No identification, Coley? Not a thing, sir. Look inside his suit coat pocket, see if there's a label. Yes, sir. You won't find the thing now. There's no use looking. No, no label, Captain. Nothing here. I think I found the alarm, Captain. Now, come on, Pop. We don't want to waste any more time. Description fits. We should be out catching robbers. I'd better get that. Uh, excuse me, Captain. Yeah? Put me in jail if you want to. Pop, is your name John W. Lowfield? 21st Precinct, Sergeant Waters. Is it? We have a missing persons alarm for a John W. Lowfield, age 78 years old, put out yesterday morning by his daughter, Mrs. Elizabeth Heppel, 42 West 79th Street. She, uh, she says he's missing from home and describes him as 5 feet 8 inches tall, 145 pounds, medium build, gray, almost white hair, glasses, wearing a Brown suit, gray sweater. Well, this suit's brown, isn't it? And the sweater's gray. Are you John W. Lowfield? The uh, description says he has a two-inch cut scar in the palm of his right hand. 
Let's see your right hand, Pop. He's got it, Captain. I'm not going back there now. There's no use you calling her. I'm not going back there. I'm just not. Why not? They don't want me. She's your daughter, isn't she? That doesn't make her want me. She got worried that you were missing. What did you do, run away? No, I, I didn't run. I'm too old to run. I just walked. You are listening to 21st Precinct, a factual account of the way police work in the world's largest city. If you were to sit down and list some of the rights and freedoms that you have, you would probably list the big things like, oh, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, and others. Well, those are mighty important. But what about the little things? Things you don't think about much because you pretty well accept them as a matter of course, like choosing the business or profession you want to go into. You know, in some countries, you work at the job assigned to you with no free choice at all. Or like getting as much education as you can in schools that are open to all. In some countries, education is only for the privileged few. Or take a little thing like buying a house or renting an apartment for your family. There are places in this world where you live right where you're told. Have you ever thought about why you're allowed these free choices? Why you accept it as your right? It's because such free choices are guaranteed to you and your children and to generations in the future. To be exact, it's in Article 9 of our Bill of Rights. The men who wrote our Constitution and our Bill of Rights put this in just in case they forgot to mention something important in the other. It says, The enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. You get that? It's not left to Congress or the President or any special group. These rights belong to all of us, to the people. It's one of our freedoms. Now back to 21st Precinct and Captain Kennelly. Because John W. Lowfield, the 78-year-old man found sleeping in the hallway at 2 o'clock in the morning, was the subject of a missing persons alarm, he was not booked in on the charge of disorderly conduct. Instead, he was taken upstairs to the 21st Detective Squad to await disposition of the case. In the meantime, Lieutenant Gorman, the desk officer, informed the Manhattan Communications Bureau, which in turn put out a cancellation of the alarm on the teletype. According to established procedure, the desk officer in the 20th Precinct on the west side of Manhattan sent a patrolman to the residence of Mrs. Elizabeth Heppel, the daughter of John W. Lowfield, who reported him missing, to notify her that he'd been located. At 3.15 a.m., while I was out on patrol of the precinct, Detective Edward D. McInerney returned from his meal. Carrying a paper bag, he walked in the front door of the station house, through the back room, and up the stairs to the 21st Detective Squad. There was something about the radio group well the time was different of course but I think the people involved in radio the performance I'm talking about now
See, nobody had to get their noses fixed, and nobody had to worry about weight. There wasn't the terrible competition about who was more attractive. A man who physically was not what you would call Clark Gable, Everett Sloan, God rest his soul, was the most romantic actor on radio. In a truly classical sense, he was absolutely the most appealing, masculine, macho, handsome, beguiling person. Well, that couldn't happen in any of the visual branches of the medium. Everett Sloan continued to be a busy actor until 1965. On August 6th of that year, recently diagnosed with glaucoma and fearing blindness, he took his own life. He was survived by his wife, Lillian, and two children. Everett Sloan is buried at Angeles Rosedale Cemetery in Los Angeles. McNutley, created by Joe Connolly and Bob Mosher, with Phyllis Avery and Gordon Jones. Well, there's an ice cream parlor, much favored by the girls of Lynn Haven College, that is never patronized by Professor Raymond R. McNutley, head of the English department. Meet Mr. McNutley first took to CBS's airwaves on September 17, 1953. Ray Milland played Ray McNutley, English professor at Lynn Haven College. Phyllis Avery was Peggy, his wife. It aired concurrently on TV with much of the same cast. Doesn't seem at all like September. Why, it's as warm as a night in midsummer. Ray, uh, maybe Miss Bradley'd like a drink. Oh, why, sure. What'll it be? Could I get you some uh, root beer? Why, yes, that would be nice. We haven't any root beer. Uh, how's the new freshman class shaping up, Miss Bradley? Well, it's hard to tell what sort of shape it has with the kind of clothes that the girls wear nowadays. Blue jeans, sloppy sweaters. How about some orange soda? Oh, that'll be fine, thank you. We haven't any orange soda. I know what I can get you, Dean Bradley. Sarsaparilla. Why, yes, I... Very fond of sarsaparilla. <laughs> We're out of sarsaparilla. <laughs> now, this place is a dried-up oasis in the heart of the Sahara. <laughs> what have we got? 
We have an old dusty bottle of raspberry fizzle. Well, why didn't you say so a long time ago? Isn't that great, Dean Bradley? I'll go right in and... No, 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 thank you. Frankly, I detest raspberry fizzle. Oh. Well, it's really a very refreshing drink if you know how to get it down. (laughs) It's so popular, the stores can't keep up with the demand. To get this bottle, I had to bribe the clerk and promise to, uh... Ray, this was one of two bottles that was left on our doorstep three years ago by a promotion crew. Oh, no, no, you're mistaken, Peg. That was Grape's way. <laughs> it was raspberry fizzle. I distinctly recall... You had the doctor at four o'clock in the morning. His diagnosis, I believe, was inside sunburn. <laughs> the pain would disappear as soon as your stomach peeled. Well, I was run down and probably oversusceptible. Sure you won't have some raspberry fizzle, Dean Bradley? Oh, no, no, thank you. Uh, however, if you insist that I have something... Uh, uh, do you have any ice cream? Oh, we always have ice cream. What's your favorite flavor? Butter crunch. Well, what do you know? You know, that's our favorite, too. Let's all have some, Peg. Uh, <clears throat> we haven't any. <laughs> well, I guess Miss Bradley be satisfied with maple nut or pistachio or walnut. We uh, have no maple nuts, or pistachio, walnut, strawberry, chocolate, vanilla, pineapple, or tutti frutti. In fact... We have no ice cream. Look, what do we keep in our refrigerator? Ice cubes. <laughs> Something's out of adjustment, and it keeps making them faster than we can use them. Really, Dean Bradley, this is all very embarrassing. Oh, it's quite all right. Think nothing of it, please. Say, I have an idea. There's a new place that just opened uh, off the campus that calls itself the Jigger Shop. Ice cream candies, soft drinks. Why don't we go down there? Oh, how about it, Miss Bradley? Well, our girls will probably make it a rendezvous, so uh, I should like to look it over and ascertain its character. Why don't we stroll down and have some uh, butter crunch? Well, say now, that's the spirit, don't you think so, Peg? I'll run the car out of the garage. And... Uh, Ray, Miss Bradley said stroll. Well, honestly, to hear her talk, Miss Bradley, anyone would think I never went anywhere without a car. I just thought, since it's such a warm night, that you'd rather... Oh, I love to walk. Well, shall we start? Coming, dear? I certainly. I was ready five minutes ago. Just waiting for you to make up your minds how you wanted to go, that's all. Now, just sing out if I set too fast a pace. I don't want to exhaust you. I sometimes forget myself and drop into the famous ground-covering stride I used when I won the 100-mile cross-country marathon. Girls? Girls, will you take it easy? Hey, girls! Wait for me! (laughs) The show would be short-lived, going off the air after June 10, 1954. The TV show lasted one more season, changing the character's name to McNulty in the process. Oh, I think it's one of the nicest ice cream parlors I've ever seen, Miss Bradley. Don't you like it, Ray? Yes, yeah. Very pretty. Anybody get out of time in that last quarter? Looking pretty close to the Olympic record.
Ladies and gentlemen, my only announcement this morning is a very short one. But uh, there's a 30-year uh, struggle and study is terminated, and tomorrow morning I sign the Seaway bill at 9 o'clock. That's my single announcement. We'll go to questions. Mr. President, John Cutter of the United Press. Last week, Senator McCarthy testified that an Army security officer gave him classified FBI information, which the Attorney General later said was done without authorization. Would you care to comment on the propriety of such actions? On Friday, May 14, 1954, President Eisenhower gave a news conference, immediately opening the floor to reporters for general questions. One of it involved a senator. The day prior, the World Chess Championship was won by Mikhail Botvinnik in Moscow. Incident, and so I won't talk about that part of it. On this day, the well, Boeing 707 was released. On Monday the 16th, the Kenjir well, uprising broke out at a Soviet labor camp. Political prisoners forced out guards and administration. It would last over a month. That is so reprehensible that Meanwhile in the U.S., Senator McCarthy's tirade had resulted in each political party's questioning the other's loyalty as well as talks of treason within the armed forces. Eisenhower simultaneously had both nothing and a lot to say on these matters. Or in any of the services. An enlisted man, when he takes an oath, includes in that oath to obey the orders of the superior officers set above him and the army regulations. So, are we to assume that an enlisted man has one kind of loyalty to the government and to the uh, commanders set over him, and an officer a lesser one. It's perfectly ridiculous. The soul of an army, the soul of a defensive force, is the certainty that everybody responds to the laws of the land and to the orders of the superiors all the way up to the commander-in-chief. Assume otherwise, and how would you fight a battle? I give an order to you uh, people as uh, division commanders or uh, something of that nature that to uh, carry out your part of the battle and you decide that isn't a thing to do. But you, whenever we get to adopting that theory in the military or in our civilian organization, we'd better disband. On the contrary, fortunately, their sense of loyalty all the way through, and I don't refer merely to the fighting services, their sense of loyalty and dedication to their country and the obligations of their service is high indeed, and I'm proud of it. But let us not for one second ever think of condoning uh, insubordination and particularly wherein, as in this case, there are special laws that apply to the release of confidential information. Mr. President, uh, Father, Washington Post, Times Herald. Uh, Mr. President, former President Truman made a speech at the National Press Club the other day, and the essence of it was this, <clears throat> that in these critical days, foreign policy should be taken out of the political arena, that this is impossible so long as Republican political assassins are calling Democrats traitors, and that the only one who can uh, put an end to these charges of treason is the President of the United States. Any comments? I wouldn't answer anyone who finds it uh, proper to criticize me and my actions. But I will call your attention to what I have said before. That question came up here in a press conference. Whether I considered uh, Democrats of the uh, 
uh, to be a disloyal person and that sort of thing. I ridiculed the idea and said not only did I have great many personal friends among them, but and they were just exactly as loyal as all other Americans. I don't see that I can, I cannot discern in my own mind any difference between the loyalty, dedication, and patriotism of people are depending upon the particular party to which they belong in this country, and I've said that always. Getting back to the previous question, uh, has uh, any effort been made to discover who gave classified information to Senator McCarthy? I don't know. I've had no report. President Levero, New York Times, again on the first question, if uh, an enlisted man or an officer feels uh, his superiors are derelict in uh, uh, throwing disloyal people out of the services. Don't they have some recourse outside of the regular command channels by uh, filing a complaint with the inspector general? That's right. That's right. Matter of fact, in every unit I've ever commanded, everybody along the line, if he had something that uh, weighed on his heart heavily, has had a right to get to me. And I've had them. I've had enlisted men when I was commanding an entire theater of operations come to me uh, to give me ideas, and some of them were awfully good. Alan Emery at Watertown Times, sir. I have uh, two closely allied questions, sir, and neither has to do with the St. Lawrence Seaway. <laughs> sir, uh, I wonder if you were concerned over the increasing democratic attacks on administration foreign policy, and if so, what proportion of those attacks you ascribed to election year politics and what proportion to genuine concern over world affairs? I never attack another's motives. I don't know what the motivation is, but uh, so far, I think, as is possible and practicable, the foreign affairs of the United States are handled on a bipartisan basis. I note that yesterday, the majority leader in the Senate, uh, in a talk, gave an exact record, and put in the congressional record, how many times the State Department alone had called in or dealt with bipartisan groups in an effort to keep them informed in advance of what was going on. On Tuesday, May 17th, Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka would finally be decided. Terror on the Air is an auditory escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the Air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror.
neither Afra nor Aftra, and finally not SAG either, chose at any time to operate like a hiring hall. That was a deliberate decision. The issue has been raised, the question has been raised within every guild I've ever belonged to, and that includes the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the IA, because I, I used to carry a stagehands card when I was younger. Only the IA operates like a hiring hall, and the others do not call themselves unions. They are guilds or associations, and if the cast is relatively closed on some show or other, that's a production decision. On December 9, 1939, Harold Leopold, 31, switched on his radio in Colorado Canyon City State Prison death row and heard the final chapter of Hollywood Cherry, the current I Love a Mystery serial. Two and a half hours later, according to the Denver Post story, he was led to the gas chamber saying it was great. I got the final solution to the story just in time. I Love a Mystery is my favorite radio program. Leopold died for the murder of a Denver restaurant proprietor. That's Carlton E. Morris, creator of I Love a Mystery, reading one of the news clippings, one of about a million news clippings, I would say, that you have gathered over the years for I Love a Mystery and One Man's Family. People really turned on to your radio efforts, didn't they? They, they really did, and I'm awfully glad that I got in first on these things because it's terrible competition these days. <laughs> I'm just as glad to be out of it. <laughs> well, now, you had done so much with the family, one man's family, and the real solid family life show. When did you turn to writing the adventure and the mystery of I Love a Mystery? Well, in 1939, we had been on... Uh, about seven years on the one man's family? Yeah, about seven years on uh, with the family. I suddenly began to feel I needed something besides the family. It wasn't that I wanted to give the family up, but I wanted to be free for a few hours with something else. So when an uh, advertising agency suggested that they would like to see what I could do in the way of a mystery, they said, write two or three shows what you'd like to do and give us an outline. So I chose three characters, Jack, Doc, and Reggie. I gave several titles. Among them was I Love a Mystery, which the agency selected. They didn't even read the scripts. They just said, uh, okay, well, we've set up a date with NBC. It'll be five times a week. You mean just on the basis of the titles that you submitted? They, and and your credentials as a writer. Well, of course. Yeah. I've been writing for them, for Standard Brand, for... Yeah. Five or six years. Were, you, were you employed by NBC or by the agency at, I was, at that uh, time, up to at, that point? Up to that point, and for quite a long time afterwards, I was on the NBC staff. Mm -hmm. Then, through sponsorship, I began to make so much more money than as a staff writer that I was released from the staff and depended on sponsors for money after that. Carlton E. Morse's I Love a Mystery first took to the air weekdays at 3.15 p.m. on NBC's West Coast Network in January of 1939. Michael Raffetto starred as Jack Packard, head of the A1 Detective Agency. 
with Barton Yarborough as Texan Doc Long and Walt Patterson as the British Reggie York. The show told of three world travelers in search of action, thrills, and mystery, from the ghost towns of windswept Nevada to the jungles of vampire-infested Nicaragua. They righted wrongs, rescued women, battled evil, and explored unknown parts of the globe. By that autumn, it was airing nationally. The show ran from the West Coast for five years, first over NBC's Red Network, then its Blue, and then CBS. It went off the air at the end of 1944, but was revived in the spring of 1948 on ABC, and then from New York for mutual broadcasting in October of 1949. It ran for three more years, this time starring Russell Thorson, Jim Bowles, and Tony Randall, as Thorson remembered. And the uh, I Love a Mystery thing was a complete shocker to me because we used to rehearse in the early days there at NBC on Long Man's Family in the morning. And Carlton and I would usually go down to the restaurant called the Down Under, mm-hmm. the basement of the building, and have lunch. And we were having lunch there one day, and he was paid to telephone and he came back about five minutes later and said, uh, you want another job? And I said, what kind of a job is this? He said, how do you like to do Jack Packard on I Love a Mystery? He had made the set the deal over the telephone right then at lunchtime. <laughs> so then we started hunting for casting for uh, I Love a Mystery. Jack Packard was a hero with quiet strength. Once a medical student, he shrugged off superstition in favor of logic. Reggie York was educated, strong, and had the British stiff upper lip. Doc Long was a red-headed alley fighter from Texas who defied the laws of chance and loved women. Well, Jim, how did you get that role then? Do you recall? I think Jimmy McCallion recommended me. And I went over for a quick reading and went home and nothing happened. And then I, uh, I said, I should be doing that role because for years people had told me I sounded like Barton Yarborough. I'd never met him. And so I called up and said, I want to read again. And Carlton said, all right, and so I went in again, and he said, do it. And so that's how I got Doc. Three characters could be murdered in a single episode. People were killed in ghoulish, imaginative, and sometimes mystifying ways. Throats were ripped out by wolves. There were garretings, poisonings, and mysterious slashings. We had a great cast on that mm-hmm. show, didn't we? Oh, you we had a marvelous cast. Louis Van Ruten and Bob Dryden did most of the character mm-hmm. stuff on that. They could do voices... All kinds of voices, couldn't they? They were yes, terrific. They were, they were very versatile. Yeah. Was that mutual? Was yeah. that a mutual series? And you did that out of Mutual's uh, New York studios then? Yes, yes, out of Mutual. And was New that York. recorded at the time? Was that done on disc, I suppose, maybe even taped by that point? Huh? No, I don't think it was taped then. I think it was probably disc. It was probably disc. Mm-hmm. But we, it was done live, though. Yeah, but they would, but they would make They recorded a, it for distribution yeah. to other stations. Yeah, because Mutual had a different kind of a, a setup than yeah. the, the other networks, I know. Although the serial went off the air in 1952, in May of 1954, a new audition record was produced for CBS in Hollywood. It starred Thorson, Ben Wright, and Parley Bear. You were part of a select group of actors, I think, who appeared in virtually all of the CBS programs in the 1950s. CBS was the network that hung on the longest to radio. dramatic shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the workshop and escape and so Yes, like that. and then do you Suspense. remember Armour Star Theater on Saturday mornings? Mm-hmm. You, I'm sure, like so many of the other actors out here, were doubling on some of the shows and oh, yes. were doing more than one show in a day. You just say you hadn't really arrived until you had a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I think that radio is the ideal medium 
for a performer because if 12 million people were listening, you were giving 12 million performances. It's too bad that it had to go, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. <laughs> I love a mystery. The Million Dollar Curse, a new Carlton Morse adventure thriller with Jack Packard, Doc Long, and Reggie York. in the evening in a back street hotel somewhere in San Diego. A few minutes ago, Jack Packard and Doc Long, hearing a girl crying in the next room, investigated and found her lying on her bed, head buried in her arms. She wasn't upset by their unexpected appearance, but warned them away from her. She babbled that she was possessed of the Richard's curse and that she brought death and disaster to any and all who would help her. Jack and Doc finally have calmed her to some degree of coherence. No use. This is the end. You mean you came to this hotel with the intent of taking your own life? Yes. But you're young and beautiful. And evil. Hey, what kind of talk is that? There's no other answer. Everywhere I go, I spread death and destruction. You haven't told us your name yet. Sonny Richards. Sonia, but they call me Sonny. Yeah, I like that. Sonny. You wipe them tears away and Sonny fits you like paper on the wall. You don't know what you're talking about. You're beautifully dressed. That bracelet on your wrist must have cost a lot of money. Everything about you says money. What about your family? There is no family. Just me. I see. Then you're wealthy in your own right. Money. What good is it? What good when... When... When what? When everything I touch turns to dust and ashes under my fingers... Could we have an explanation of that? Why should you? Who are you? What are you doing in my room? Oh, well, I'm Jack Packard. This is Doc Long. I still don't know who you are or what you're doing here. Look, sugar, there's three of us. Reggie's out just at the moment. Three men eager and willing, looking for trouble. So if you got problems... You, you mean you're, you're confident men? <laughs> well, not exactly. We just like excitement. When we find something that interests us, we go after it. And hearing me crying in my room interested you? Oh, honey, if there's one thing we can't stomach, it's hearing a girl cry. You can't help me. Nothing will help but, but to put an end to my miserable life. Hey, you stop it talking like that. It's true. Would you mind letting us decide that? L letting you decide? Yes. Tell us what's wrong and let us decide whether or not we can help you. But it's hopeless. Tell us. If we think it's hopeless, we'll walk out of here and let you go ahead with what you intended to do. You... You mean that? I promise. Now then, what is it? it? It's the Richard's curse. Now, you said that before. What do you mean? Every other generation, it falls on some member of the family. Four generations ago, it was my great aunt four times removed. Two generations ago, it 
was my grandmother. It always falls on one of the women. This, this generation, it's me. Well, what is, uh, what is this Richard's curse? The, the great aunt caused the death of her husband, and, and then she caused the death of her four children. You mean she murdered him? Oh, no, no, she loved them dearly. It, it was accidental. She was cleaning her husband's gun. It, it went off and killed him. The children were burned to death in their home. She locked them in while she was away from the house. They were so little. When she came back, the house was burned down. Oh, but accidents... It's the curse. It's been in the family for, for generations. What about your grandmother? Grandmother, she was kind and gentle. She wore a little knitted shawl around her shoulders, and she spent all her spare time reading her Bible. But she was cursed. When she was a girl, the first man she loved was thrown from a horse and killed. But that wasn't her fault. Oh, wait. The next man who loved her fell off a cliff to his death. Was she there at the time? No. Well, then, don't you see how and, silly that... And then she married my grandfather. And after my father and my uncle were born, he, he was drowned. And then when my uncle was 15, she, she shut him up in a closet to punish him, and he was suffocated. Hey. It's, it's always been that way. One of the women in every other generation. And now, what about you? I, I'm worse than any of them. You are? For sure? Yes, I am. I killed my own father and mother. Hey. My own father and mother. of Sonny Richards' confession of guilt in just a moment. And as Sonny Richards was saying to Jack and Doc... Yes, I am. The worst of all the richest women in all history. Maybe. Let's hear it. First... First it was my mother and father... You was the cause of their death? Yes. I I wanted to be a flyer. I learned to pilot a plane. And, and one day I got... I got them to go up with me. The plane fell? Yes. They, they were both killed. Oh, please, try not to cry. It, it's all right. I, I haven't much cry left in me. Yeah, here's my handkerchief. Thank you. You were an only child? Yes. And then, then a year ago, I, I became engaged to, to Phil. We'd only been engaged three months when, when his car went over a cliff and... Dead, huh? No. But he was so badly hurt, he'll always be a bedridden cripple. Oh, that's too bad. He would have been better off if he had been killed. But it wasn't your fault. Wait. About six months ago, I began letting Roger come and see me. I was still in love with Phil, but... I thought I should go out a little. And one night, just as Roger was leaving my house, he was held up and and shot. Did they catch the gunman? No. Any more? Yes. There was an old friend of father's. He used to visit me sometimes. About about four months ago, he fell down the front steps at, at my house. He was hurt so badly, he never recovered. Hey, I'm beginning to think you've got something with that curse. I knew you'd believe me. Oh, rubbish. But, but there's no other explanation. 
Things like that don't happen to other people. You weren't connected in any way with any of these things. They're unfortunate, but they've nothing to do with you. You've let them prey on your mind until you've become morbid. Morbid? Yes, you've developed a guilt complex, if that's all. It isn't. Yesterday, it happened again. You mean somebody else died because of you? Yes. I was to have had lunch yesterday with, with Freddie. I'd only met him a week ago. It, he didn't keep the engagement, and I rang up his home. And you know what they told me? You know what had happened? What? <laughs> Suicide. He'd killed himself with a gun in his bathroom. <laughs> Stop it. Funny, isn't it? <laughs> you, you struck me. Then get hold of yourself. That's it. Cry. It'll do you lots more good. Oh, I wish I were dead. I wish I were dead. Hey, Jack, this is awful. Now go away. Go away and let me do what I've got to do. We're not going anywhere. But you promised. I said we'd go if there wasn't anything we could do. But you can't. We'd like to try. Oh, you fools. You fools. Get out of here. Don't you understand? It'll happen to you, too. If we're willing to take the risk, what's it to you? But I don't want any more blood on my hands. I can't stand it. Don't you understand? I can't stand it. You can stand it for two weeks, can't you? Two weeks? You say the Richards' curse is on you. All right. Give us two weeks to lay that curse. You you can't cure a curse. I'll bet money we can. But but your lives are in danger. We'll take that chance. But, but you mustn't. I'm nothing to you. Hey, wait a minute, sugar. Of course you're something to us. I, I am? Damn right you are. This your world needs all the pretty little old female girls it can get. I, I, I don't understand. That means you're beautiful. But it's always an unforgivable crime to destroy beauty. Is that what you meant? Yeah, I, I didn't say it was pretty, but that's the idea. Well, put it this way. From the beginning of time, men have fought and died for beauty. It's one of the few things in the world worth fighting for. You're a beauty. You're worth saving. We think you're enough worth saving to fight for you. It's our right. You can't stop us. No one ever said anything like that to me before. Then you agree? Yes. Under no circumstances, no matter what happens, you won't try to harm yourself for two weeks. Yes, I promise. Good. Now get up and go in the bathroom and wash the tears off your face. I know I shouldn't hope, but I do. Go on. Make yourself more beautiful than you are. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you asked for it, fella. Huh? What do you mean? You know as well as I do that you can't cure curses. What do you think you are, a witch doctor? Curse, huh? Yeah, a curse. In the vernacular of Archimedes, nuts. Now, now look at Jack. Six people connected with Sonny's been killed. Five killed, one hurt. Yeah, but hurt so bad he might as well be dead. What was his name? Oh, uh, Phil. Yeah, well, well, you can't tell me all them folks just happened to die and all within a year. That does sound fishy. Must be a reason for it. The Richard's curse. Now, look, Doc, I want you to stop mentioning that curse business. Yeah, but Jack... Especially in front of her. Never mention it. What's the idea? I want her to forget it. Get it out of her mind. It's unhealthy. Well, son, all I got to say to you is... Well, visitors. Good evening, gentlemen. You were, uh, looking for something? Yes. Sonny Richards. Sonny? Uh, just a minute, Doc. Who are you? My name is Marks. Leslie Marks. I'm Miss Richards' attorney. 
Attorney, huh? And the executor of the Richards estate. I see. Now then, what right have you to be questioning me? Who are you? What are you doing in Sonny's room? Well, we're uh, friends of Miss Richards. Friends? That's what I said. Hmm. Friends. How long has this been going on? Long enough. Well, Sonny hasn't been having many friends lately. Why not? Apparently, you haven't been friends long enough to hear of the Richards' curse. Are you the one who's been filling her mind with that sort of nonsense? <laughs> Pretty serious nonsense. Five people killed, one injured for life. I know all about that. Doc. Uh, yeah? Tell Sonny to come out of the bathroom. Sure. I'll get it. How long have you known Sonny was in this hotel? I found out 15 minutes ago. I've had private operatives out looking for her ever since she disappeared from home this morning. You know why she came here? So you do know. Well, I suspected. That's why I was so frantic to find her. Yeah, some fellow named Mark. They asked him. That's him, Jack. Well, Sonny. Hello, Leslie. I've come to take you home. All right. We're going with you, you know. Uh, that? Why not? I've got the house all to myself. But these men, who are they? What right have they... We're taking the rights. Ridiculous. Sonny's bodyguard. Ridiculous. Sonny, as your attorney... As Sonny's I... attorney, you can go take a jump at yourself. So, you won't be warned. About what? The Richards curse. Please, Leslie, please. Listen, you... Get your hand off If I ever me. hear you mention that curse again in the presence of Sonny, I'll tear you limb from limb. Now, get out. Now, look here, Get I... out. Now, get your things together, Sonny. We're going home with you. You shouldn't have done that. He won't take that. Oh, shucks, honey. This is only the beginning. Only the beginning. same hour. I Love a Mystery, for 16 years, a Carlton E. Morse creation, comes to you Monday through Friday, featuring Russell Thorson as Jack, Parley Bear as Doc Long, and Ben Wright as Reggie York, with Mary Lou Harrington and Emerson Tracy. This is the CBS Radio Network. You made a comment before we started chatting here for our tape recorder about the demise of radio, the short life of it. Well, it was a wonderful and exciting life. When I went to Chicago, I believe there was something like 41 dramatic radio shows coming out of Chicago, 41 mm -hmm. a week, mm -hmm. separate shows. And I think when we left there in in 1942 to come out here, there were about five or six left. It just, the bottom simply fell out of it. And I missed it very much. I enjoyed radio very much. But of course it was mostly television after the war that oh, yes. uh, really shut the lid on uh, It completely on shut radio. the lid on it. 
But you were very much involved with radio right up to the very end. Right uh, up to the end, yeah. I guess CBS was the last of the... Yes, I think I, I think I did the last radio show, network radio show, that was done here, dramatic show, called Johnny Dollar. Bob Bailey, an ex-Chicagoan, mm. was playing Johnny Dollar on it. Betty Rogge on stage at Memorial Hall. They're getting ready for the rehearsal of Showboat that opens tonight. And Andy. Uh, well, I don't think you can compare the movies today. You have to, unless you compare the audiences of today, because it's what the audiences today wants compared to what the audiences of, say, my era wanted, you know? Uh-huh. Probably the people uh, of my time would, uh, I don't know how you could compare them. It would be awfully hard, you know? See, we had the Hayes organization that wouldn't let you uh, say or do any of those things. And now it's altogether different. So it's hard to compare with the producers. As long as people buy a certain product, that's what they're going to make, you know? <laughs> But still, you have a show like this, which is a wonderful show. was first produced in 1927, so way over 40 years old. And, About your and, age. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. And it's an old-timer, but still we played the packed house. We have a very famous man here, Mr. Andy Devine. Nice to see you, Andy. Thank you, Betty. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Andy Devine, you made so many movies with Gene Autry. How many? No, I was with Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. We were all at the same studio. We were at Republic Studio. I was with Roy, and then I went on with Guy Madison to make the Wild Bill Hickok series, you know. But I was with Roy, and Smiley Burnett That's was right. with Gene, but yes. With Gene? With Gene, yes. But you uh, didn't But you didn't actually no, make movies with Gene? No, I didn't actually work with Gene. I hear, no. I hear from Terrence Monk it's kind of hard to keep you from, from dancing all the time. Oh. Is that how you keep your figure, Andy? Oh, I, my figure, yes. It's easy to keep. It's easy to keep. It's wonderful to see. I understand your wife's here with you. Yes, yes. She's been traveling with me. Uh -huh. Oh, that's wonderful, yeah. Andy. Where do you make your home? Oh, we live in a little area south of Los Angeles called Newport Beach. Oh, that's beautiful out there. Yes, we love it. We've lived there now about 14 years and uh, like it very much. Well, Andy, I'm sorry I got you confused with Gene Autry. No, that's wonderful because so many people... Uh, I think they do, don't they? they? Do because, yes, because I'll tell you how closely we are that when Smiley passed away, which was only last year, yes. Mrs. Devine got mail saying how sorry oh. they were. That's how close that people associated the two of us together. How many movies did you make, Andy? Honey, from the silence to the TV today... It's pretty close to 400. 400 movies. Yes. Thank you, Andy Devine. James Butler Bill Hickok was born on May 27, 1837 in LaSalle County, Illinois. An excellent marksman from a young age, in 1855 he became a Kansas abolitionist jayhawker. From there, he became a constable, joined the Pony Express parent company, was badly wounded by a bear, and committed his first justifiable homicide. This was all before the age of 25. 
During the Civil War, Hickok became a Union Army teamster, a wagon master, joined the Kansas Brigade, and became a spy for the Provost Marshal of Missouri. He was also a gambler and drinker, known to carouse for days at a time. On July 21, 1865, Hickok took part in his first duel, killing a man named Davis Tutt. He shot Tutt through the heart from 75 yards away. A subsequent interview with Harper's New Monthly magazine labeled him Wild Bill for the first time. Rather than become an outlaw, Hickok became a lawman. He was soon a deputy marshal at Fort Riley and scouted for Custer's 7th Cavalry. By December of 1867, he was a marshal in Hayes City and later sheriff of the same town. In April of 1871, he became marshal in Abilene, Kansas. That October, Hickok justifiably killed a saloon owner named Phil Coe. But during the fight, Hickok saw a man running towards him. He wheeled and fired, killing what turned out to be his own deputy. The event haunted Hickok the rest of his life. It was the last time he was ever involved in a gunfight. Radio's version bore little resemblance to the real man. The format was the same used by the producers of Hopalong Cassidy and the Cisco Kid. Bill's comic sidekick, Jingles B. Jones, was voiced by the famed Andy Devine. Guy Madison was Wild Bill. Hollywood regulars supported. The show first aired over Mutual on May 27, 1951. On May 14, 1954, the episode was called Dangerous Advice. Kellogg's, the greatest name in cereals, presents... Wild Bill Hickok! Hiya, neighbors! Strap on your shooting irons and let's saddle up for another thrill-packed Wild Bill Hickok adventure with Guy Madison as Wild Bill and Andy Devine, that's me, as his pal Jingles. Brought to you by the cereal you can eat out of the bowl or out of the box. The cereal with the sweetening already on it, Kellogg's Sugar Pops! Today, Kellogg's Sugar Pops, the cereal with the sweetening already on it, brings you Wild Bill Hickok, transcribed in Hollywood and starring Guy Madison as Wild Bill and Andy Devine as his pal Jingles. In just 30 seconds, you'll hear the exciting story, Dangerous Advice. Know when Kellogg's sugar corn pops taste best? Anytime you eat them. They're wonderful with milk or cream for breakfast. And for a snack, nothing beats sugar corn pops. Because they're not just sugar coated, they're shot with sugar. You get shot with sugar flavor in every bite. From a bowl, from a box, any time of day, sugar corn pops are best. So next time Mom goes shopping, let her know you want those shot with sugar Kellogg's Sugar Corn Pops. United States Marshal Wild Bill Hickok and his big deputy Jingles ran across many strange people in their work of upholding the law in the Old West. But one of the strangest they ever met was a mild-mannered little professor who soon had the two lawmen involved in dangerous advice. All I've got to 
say is that this is a heck of a day to have to work, Bill Hickok. Jingles, any day is a bad day to work as far as you're concerned. Oh, you make it sound like I'm lazy or something. All I object to is working on a holiday. What holiday is this? It's my grandma Sadie's birthday. And ever since I can remember, the Jones family always took a holiday on her birthday. Well, I don't think the U.S. Marshal's office considers that a legal holiday, partner. Besides, with Jug Farrell and his gang shooting up the country, we'd have to work even if it was Christmas Day. What's that no good weasel done now, Bill? Oh, he and his gun hands pulled a raid on the bank in Cactus Junction. Shut up the bank manager and Sheriff Wilson. So, with the sheriff out of action, it's up to us to run down the varmint and put him in jail. That's about the size of it. And I don't know just where to start. Jug and his gang are holed up somewhere here in the mountains, but I don't know where. Yeah, we'll just start looking. Speaking of looking... Take a look at what's on the road up ahead of us. Yeah, I see it. An old-fashioned covered wagon. Yeah, I haven't seen a real prairie schooner like that for years, Bill. Wonder what it's doing way out here. Let's go find out. Get up there, Buckshot. Move along, Joker. You know, I thought most of the covered wagons went to California with the 49ers during the gold rush. Well, maybe one of them didn't find gold and he's coming back. The gold rush was 20 years ago, Jingles. Well, maybe he didn't give up very easy. Whoa, Joker, who? Easy, Buckshot. Who? Funny. Just sitting here with the horses hitched, nobody around. Maybe somebody's inside. It don't look like it. No, nobody in here. Bill, we've discovered a mystery. Well, whoever's been driving this rig is around someplace. The horses are still warm. Hey, Bill, look there. That sign painted on the canvas. Yeah, wonder what that's all about. I'll read it to you. Horace Early Bird Advisory Service. Advice on any subject. Nominal fees, advice guaranteed. I can read, Jingles. I just wonder what it means. It means Horace Early Bird is in the advice business. Well, Horace Early Bird is in a part of the country where giving too much advice can be very dangerous. Now, folks around here don't like to be told what to do. Now, I'm wondering what sort of a gent Mr. Early Bird is. I'm wondering where Mr. Early Bird is. Probably looking for a worm. <laughs> That's a dandy. <laughs> Hello there. Here I am. Bill. All right, Jingles. He's up on that rock above us. Uh, see what I mean. Hey, you gentlemen looking for advice or just... Oh, oh, oh. Passing through. No, we're not looking for advice. What was you doing up on that rock? Oh, oh my goodness, aren't you nosy? I was merely observing the countryside. I'm always observant. That's Horace Early Bird for you. <laughs> That's how I stored up the great fund of knowledge that I dispense in my business. Well, Wild Bill Hickok and Jingles is always observant, too. That's how we catch all the owl hoots that make up our business. Wild Bill Hickok? That must be you. That's right, Mr. Early Bird. I'm the U.S. Marshal around here. And I'm Jingles, his big old jolly deputy. Oh, <laughs> say you are, aren't you? Big that... Is that all you? Since you're always observing, maybe you saw a few riders heading through this way. Yeah, we're looking for as mean a bunch of bank bandits as you ever saw. A bank bandit? Oh, my goodness. As a matter of fact, I did see a group of men, uh, three of them to be precise, stopped and asked me for advice about the trail I'd just come over. 
Oh, yes, and they didn't pay me for my services. You're going to charge us for that bit of information? Oh, no, 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 no. It's my civic duty to offer assistance at no charge to officials of the law. Good. <laughs> We're getting it for free, Bill. Which way did these three riders go? Well, as a matter of fact, they left the trail and they headed back into that little canyon. You see that little canyon right there where the stream flows through? Uh, see, what's back in there? Nothing but a bunch of rocks and caves. Bill, that's Wilderness Canyon. That's an awful place to have to trail anybody. It sure is. There's a place for a bushwhacker to hide at every turn. Yeah, well, if you're going in there after them, let me give you some advice. Well, as long as we're getting it for nothing. Well, if I were you, Jingles, now let me see, what would I... Oh, yes, I'd move your left holster a little farther forward. Yes, that's right. And sit up, sit up straighter in the saddle. Yeah, uh, it looks to me like you're a little bit off balance. There. Oh, it does, huh? Well, it looks to me like you're a little unbalanced yourself. Now, I've been riding this way and carrying my guns this way for a long time. And I ain't had no trouble yet. Well, have it your own way. I only offer advice. My customers don't have to take it. Well, thanks anyway, Mr. Early Bird. Come on, Jingles. Let's head into Wilderness Canyon. telling me how to ride and carry my gun. He just wanted to help, Jingles. Hey, let's pull up here a minute and have a look. We're getting into the steep part of the canyon. Yep, oh, Joker. Easy, Buckshot. Woo, boy. You're sure right about this canyon, Bill. Big rocks to hide behind wherever you look. Why, there could be one of Jug Farrell's gang on the other side of this boulder right here. Yeah, I suppose there could be. There's three of us, Hickok. Hmm? Get your hands up. Bill! Don't turn around. Each of us has got two guns pointing right at your back. Not much we can do, then. Get your hands up, Jingle. They're up. Somehow I got the feeling that things just ain't working out the way they should. sugar corn pops hit the mark. Yes, sir, those shot with sugar golden puffs of corn are perfect first thing in the morning with a little milk or cream poured over them. No need to mess with a sugar bowl, remember, because the sweetening's already on them. Yep, better than you could do it yourself. Why, each and every golden nugget of corn is shot with sugar. And that makes sugar corn pops hit the mark at snack time, too, Wranglers. Like in the middle of the morning, after lunch, or when you're sitting listening to the radio or reading a good western. Mmm, that's mighty sweet eating. Sugar corn pops aren't just sugar-coated. They're shot with sugar so that you get shot with sugar flavor in every bite. And say, because it's such a swell cereal and snack, you'll need a large box of sugar corn pops. Tell Mom to look for the picture of Guy Madison or Andy Devine galloping his horse in the front of the package and look for those magic words, shot with sugar. And she's sure to bring home those mmm, mmm. Kellogg's Sugar Corn Pops. Yippee! Sugar Pops. They're sugar-coated, taste so sweet. Just pour on some milk. Oh, boy, they're neat. Kellogg's Sugar Corn Pops. Sugar Pops are Pops. While Bill and Jingles had just ridden into Wilderness Canyon on the trail of the bank robbers when they stopped for a look at the rough country around them. Instantly, they were covered by the guns of Jug Farrow and his gang. 
I'll make a move, Hickok, or I'll blow a hole right in your back. Get their guns, Dutch. Right, Jim. Money. You take your rope and tie them to that pine tree. Put one of them on each side, back to back. Tie them so tight they can't possibly get loose. You mean you got Wild Bill Hickok cold in front of your sights and you're letting him live? Shut up. I know what I'm doing. By the time he gets loose, we'll be so far gone, he'll never catch us. But just in case we do get picked up sometime, I don't want Hickok's killing on my head. I'm glad to hear that, Pharaoh. I'm not doing you any favors. I just know what a lot of folks would do to me for killing you. Well, I feel a lot safer now. Get your hands back up. Look out for him, Pharaoh. Hold it. I said I didn't want to kill you. But if you make one move, I will. Let me give you a little careful, advice. Careful, Jingles, careful. You know you don't like anybody giving you advice. Oh, yeah, that's right. We've done enough talking. Finish tying him up, Bonnie. All done, Farrell. Now let's get out of here. As long as this smart star pack is still alive, I ain't riding easy. Yeah, sure, let's go. <laughs> I hope somebody comes along this trail in a few days and finds you, Hickok. <laughs> Be too bad if you and Jingles starve to death. We'll get loose somehow. And when we do, look out. Me and Bill get you three sidewinders if we have to trail you to the North Pole. Well, let me give you a little advice, big boy. You keep that mouth of yours shut. Take it easy, Jingles. All right. Farrell, one of these days real soon, you're going to get paid for that slap. With interest. Wild Bill Hickok aired until New Year's Eve, 1954. Mutual brought it back the following July. It ran until February of 1956. In early 1876, Hickok was diagnosed with glaucoma. Fearing blindness, he joined his friends Charlie Utter and Calamity Jane Cannery in Deadwood, Dakota Territory. On August 2, 1876, he was playing poker. He'd badly beaten a man named Jack McCall the night before at cards. Although Hickok usually sat facing the door, no such seats were available. That afternoon, he was playing five-card poker and holding a pair of aces and eights. In 1958, CBS's Frontier Gentleman dramatized the moment. Uh, three. Kendall? Two, please. Mm. Give me one. There's a man's gonna drop dead if he pulls it right. How's about you, Charlie? Uh, two. Dealer takes three. That's one thing I ain't or never hope to be. Your bet, Wild Bill. Well, I'll tell you, friends, I'm going to make this rough on you. Two bucks. Mm. All right. I call. Not me. You and I ain't dropping dead, neither. Well, I'll see you. I'm a sucker. All right. What do you got, Wild Bill? Prettiest two pair you ever seen. Aces and eights. Jack McCall walked in and shot Hickok in the back of the head from point-blank range.
while Bill died instantly. He was 39. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. Look out! Thirty years with the same network? Thirty years? I'm on my 31st. No. Have you ever been with another network? I no. don't recall. You've no. never worked for any of the other no, major this networks? No, this is it. This is it. On Radio 2, always NBC? Radio. I was on radio for 12 years before that. Yeah. So I'm on my 43rd year. That's incredible. Started as a child. I I sat there listening to you. Yeah. One minute. When I, was, when I was growing up, not to make you sound like an elderly man, but I, I would tell you and Jack Benny and Fred Allen and Fibber McGee and Molly and all of those shows had a great effect sure, on people of sure, my generation. Sure. We stole from you all. Sure. A little, little bit here and there. Sure. Your first show was... a great, love, wonderful medium. I don't know why we ever got into this stuff, you know. <laughs> I love... No, I love radio at Sunset and Vine where we used to do and read the jokes and kiss the script and walk out and drop the whole thing in the can and right. keep going right to the golf course. <laughs> now you have to go and have your head blocked, you know. Make up and all that stuff. shy, look you over. My God, it's murder. <laughs> American Dairy Association, the nation's dairy farmers present the Bob Hope Show, transcribed direct from Hollywood with Les Brown and his band of renown. For the American Dairy Association, whose dairy farmers produce the world's finest family of delicious, healthful foods, yours truly, Bill Goodwin. Our singing star, Margaret Whiting. Our special guest, Grace Kelly. And here he is, Bob Hope. Thank you very, very much, ladies and gentlemen. Here I am again for the American Dairy Association, whose 10 million cows bring you 40 million gallons of milk day after day. Milk is one thing that keeps going on and on. You can't interrupt it, even by yelling, point of order. <laughs> I was in Washington last week, but nobody noticed me. I, I was, went to see the gentleman and had a few words with him about taxes. He had two for me, paid him. <laughs> While I was back there, I took in the Kentucky Derby and vice versa. <laughs> so I was so late getting back. Hitchhiking isn't what it used to be. <laughs> but they were very nice to the losers this year. As you left the track, there was a bus waiting to take you to Strike It Rich. <laughs> a 
California horse won the Derby, and she not only got the prize money, but something every American filly dreams about, a date with Trigger. <laughs> and you could tell it was a California horse. It was the only one in the race wearing dark blinkers, a sunsuit, open-toed shoes, and galoshes. <laughs> I had a wonderful trip. I always enjoy seeing my old friends in Cleveland. The nice thing about my old friends is they never ask me for any of my money. They just want theirs back. <laughs> and I made a personal appearance with the picture Casanova's Big Night in Milwaukee, the beer town. I'm always nervous in Milwaukee. You never know whether the audience is applauding or burping. <laughs> I wasn't happy with the way the theater advertised the picture. There was a big sign that said, Casanova's Big Night starring Bob Hope bowling in the basement. What do you have? And I went to see the Cleveland Indians play ball. I'm tremendously interested in the team, but I didn't get to see much of what went on. I intended the game as Jack Benny's guest, and we took turns looking through the knot hole. <laughs> Jack Benny, that's the Howard Hughes of the gay 90s. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because I'm going to appear on Jack's next TV show. He does a show every three weeks. He has to allow three weeks between shows. It takes the guest stars that long to read all the clauses in the contract. <laughs> I had a nice trip. You know, I travel so much that my wife, Dolores, still doesn't know what I do for a living. She thinks I'm a guide on Welcome Travelers. <laughs> it was a strenuous trip, so when I got back, I dropped in at my doctor's for a check. He's been dropping in at my place all winter for one. <laughs> the man I go to happens to be a famous baby doctor. And when I guess he's absent-minded, he patted me around the waist and he said, come back in two weeks and don't do any lifting or bending. I asked the doctor to listen to my heart. I don't know how the beat sounded, but he listened for a moment. Then he called three other doctors and some nurses in, and they started a mamba session. Bob Hope joined NBC's Red Network in December of 1937. For the next 10 years, he starred on the Pepsin program, racking up the top-rated show five consecutive seasons between the fall of 1942 and the spring of 1947. Then, as radio's ratings were hitting an all-time high, Hope opened the fall of 1947 to harsh reviews. Both the critics and public were bored with his formula. Ratings dropped, and Hope responded with a shakeup the following year. Gone were Vera Vague and Jerry Colonna. The show became more of a situation comedy. It was radio itself, though, that had begun to fade. Hope spent two seasons being sponsored by Swan Soap, and then by Chesterfield, Jell-O, and American Dairy. His top show fell to fifth overall, then seventh, then tenth, thirty-third and finally 47th in 1953. In 1954, his Friday at 8.30 rating was under 3.3. On May 14th, his guest was the 24-year-old actress Grace Kelly. She'd won the Academy Award for Best Actress in Country Girl two months prior. Her fourth starring role, Dial M for Murder, was about to premiere. Continuing our story, let's return to Africa and the town of Mombasa. Grace Kelly has appealed to the jungle hunter to lead her safari. He's awaiting his decision. It was a difficult decision to make. It would be madness to lead an expedition into the Zambezi country. It was deep in the interior, fever-ridden, and the natives there still practiced head shrinking. If they took a dislike to someone, they shriveled his head to the size of a kumquat. <laughs> One jungle hunter had wandered into their territory, and when he came back, from the neck up, all he had was a doorknob. <laughs> all my instincts told me to skip this trip, but I couldn't get the beautiful American out of my mind. That blonde, silken hair 
Those deep blue eyes, that gorgeous, shapely figure. And to top it off, she was a girl. <laughs> well, have you made up your mind? Will you lead my safari to Zambezi? Well, I've thought of one route that might get us through. Look at this map on the wall. Now, we go from Saki to Bangasi here, through the valley of the Ruanzori into Uganda, cross here through the Cameroons, then down into Rhodesia by way of Bukama, Masumba, Pretoria, Matadi, Bameko, Kalwisi, Busumbre, Segu, Katiola, and Atanga. <laughs> you better go on by yourself. I'm pooped. <laughs> we went to the office of the district commissioner of police. <laughs> I'd like to leave as soon as possible, Commissioner. I think that can be arranged. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be perfectly safe on my trip. For my safari leader, I've hired this gentleman here, Buona Hope. Oh, no. <laughs> Not Buona Hope. I've heard Buona Hope is a very good jungle hunter. Are you kidding? This man doesn't even know how to handle a gun. He shot so many of his own toes off, he's the only guide in Africa who wears children-sized shoes. <laughs> Oh, you're exaggerating. Oh, no, I'm not. Every time Buona Hope starts out on a hunting trip, Band-Aid stock jumps 12 points. <laughs> Look, we just came here for a travel permit. Did we get it or not? Oh, I'm sure Buona Hope will be a satisfactory leader, Commissioner. You don't know him like we do. He's the worst guide in Africa. Each time he takes out a safari, the same thing happens. What's that? The minute he gets past the last mobile gas station, he's hopelessly lost. <laughs> Jungle guide. Ha! He couldn't find his way out of Carmen Miranda's hat. <laughs> Don't worry about my safari. I'm going to ford the Zonga River, then cut straight across the jungle, knocking over a few lions and tigers on the way. Then I'll head directly for Mozambique. If I have to cut my way through the whole Maasai and Zulu tribes single-handed. Oh, that will be jolly. <laughs> and one more thing. What's that? When you pass Mount Kilimanjaro, say hello to Eva Gardner. Quiet or I'll bend your picture of Liberace Well, uh, goodbye, Miss Kelly Goodbye, Commissioner We started the next morning from Mombasa By noon, we were in dense jungle Parakeets flew overhead Monkeys scolded us from the branches. Wild animals peered at us from the underbrush. Those Holsteins can get pretty mean, you know. Our safari pressed on. Bell sisters are lost. <laughs> I knew. I knew the American girl was nervous, so I stayed close to her. Look, a huge lion. Betty, when a lion growls like that, he doesn't mean any trouble. But when he roars, that's when the cowards climb the tree.
You know, you can see all over from up here. <laughs> night we camped, and beyond the light of the campfire, the jungle was a wall of black around us. I tried to get acquainted with the tall, leather-faced hunter of Wana Hope. <laughs> nice sitting here together, isn't it? Sure is, ma'am. You like the jungle, don't you? Ain't bad. But... <laughs> they originally had Tennessee Ernie for this part. <laughs> Can you stand such a lonely life? You don't have a girlfriend. You don't even know what day it is out here. I've got a calendar that answers both your questions. <laughs> he was very handsome sitting there. I tried to get him to kiss me. You know you're very handsome. Think so? <laughs> Come over here. Closer to me. Well? Closer? Now, take my lips. Oh, are they detachable? <laughs> you know, you're a strange man. Why do you brood so much? Well, I can't help it. Danger lurks everywhere. You never know when you'll be clawed by a tiger or eaten by cannibals or sink in the quicksand or die of jungle fever. Well, then why do you stay here? I only have to stay here eight more months. Then what happens? I report back to Art Linkletter on People Are Funny. <laughs> going to bed. Good night. There's only one tent. That's right. Who sleeps in the tent? Well, you're a woman. Your skin is tender. You're not used to the jungle at night. But I'm an old hand here in Africa. Nothing bothers me. So under the circumstances, yes. we'll toss for it. <laughs> The days went by. We trekked on and on, deeper and deeper into the jungle. Our progress was slow. We were held up by crocodile, infested rivers, herds of buffalo, and masses of rhinoceri. If any Harvard men are listening. <laughs> then one day, we marched into a native village and found the man Grace Kelly was searching for. <laughs> Here, man, you look for Uncle Jeffrey, is it really you? Well, that's right, my dear. I have stayed here all these years because I like it. This is the last remaining place in the world where a man can find real peace and quiet, contentment. The natives are untouched, unspoiled by civilization. This place would be a paradise forever. Poor man. I didn't have the heart to tell him that his dream would soon be shattered. The next week, the freeway was coming through. <laughs> Well, we've come a long way and we're tired. Get these guys to unpack our bags. Prepare some food. They're no help just stand there gaping at us. Hey, easy now. These people are not used to harsh treatment. Come on, everybody. Get a move on. Get busy. Careful. They have guns. Who cares? They'll do as I say. No bunch of Congo villagers can scare me. What do you think I am, yellow? <laughs> you know, you can see all over from up here. <laughs> Grace Kelly would appear in seven more films over the next two years. She retired after her marriage to Prince Rainier III of Monaco. Her last film was High Society, opposite Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. 
response in that very fashion. Sex suggestions for frying chicken, for instance. By 1954, Hope was appearing on TV. He did commentary for NBC's coverage of the 1952 political conventions. And although he never had a regular TV series, he starred in 272 TV specials between 1950 and 1996. In later years, he became the network's senior statesman, and his theme song, Thanks for the Memories, became synonymous with his comedy. Oh, thanks for the memories of the cerebral palsy campaign and their efforts to obtain the needed funds for the helpless ones this drive we must sustain. And we thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, during the month of May, United Cerebral Palsy is conducting its annual drive to raise the funds necessary to continue its work of research and to maintain its treatment centers, clinics, and other facilities. Each year, almost 10,000 children are born with cerebral palsy. Thousands of GIs from World War II are paraplegic patients. And traffic accidents and brain injuries run the total of cerebral palsy cases up to over half a million. With long and expensive treatment, many of these cases can be cured. And in many, there is great improvement. But all this takes lots of money. However, no price is too great as it will help these people to talk and laugh and work again. So please send as much as you can to Cerebral Palsy in care of your postmaster. Thank you very much. Good night. Be sure to listen to the Bob Hope Show next week from Hollywood with our special guest, Merle Oberon. The Bob Hope Show, an NBC Radio Network production, was written by Norman Sullivan and Charles Lee, transcribed direct from Hollywood, California. This program has been brought to you by the American Dairy Association, the nation's dairy farmer. Remember, butter brightens the flavor of every food it touches. Sunday, May 23, 1954, at 6 p.m. Eastern, the American Forum of the Air signed on Mutual with a discussion of the Supreme Court's decision on Brown versus the Board of Education. On May 17, the court ruled that racial segregation within the U.S. public school system was unconstitutional. It repealed the separate but equal doctrine from 1896. By the early 1950s, the NAACP was filing lawsuits on behalf of plaintiffs in South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware, with Thurgood Marshall as attorney. In the most famous case, Oliver Brown filed suit against the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas after his daughter, Linda, was denied access to Topeka's all-white elementary schools. Brown claimed it violated the 14th Amendment. This case and four others eventually went before the U.S. Supreme Court in December of 1952. At first, the justices were divided on how to rule. Chief Justice Fred M. Vinson felt the 1896 verdict should stand. But he died in September of 1953, and President Eisenhower replaced him with California Governor Earl Warren. 
Eisenhower knew this appointment would help overturn the 19th century verdict. In the decision issued on May 17, 1954, Warren wrote that, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place, and segregated schools are inherently unequal. Days after that decision, there was considerable debate in the media over whether desegregation was fair. In this episode of the American Forum, the debate is between Democrat Senator Paul Douglas of Illinois and Democrat Senator Price Daniel of Texas. Stay tuned for the American Forum of the Air on NBC. The National Broadcasting Company presents transcribed the American Forum of the Air, America's oldest unrehearsed discussion program. This week, the American Forum of the Air presents a discussion of the topic, Is the Supreme Court Segregation Decision Sound? Here with us to discuss this question are Senator Paul Douglas, Democrat of Illinois, and Senator Price Daniel, Democrat of Texas. But before the debate begins, here is a message of importance. The American Forum of the Air's roots were planted in Gimbel's department store in 1928. Gimbel's own WGBS. Theodore Granick, a young law student who worked for Gimbel's, did continuity, wrote dialogue, and reported sports events. He had an idea for a panel discussion on all kinds of legal issues. If you do, when the station was sold, WOR gave Granick a similar job. Those who must learn to walk the American Forum of the Air premiered in 1934. By 1943, it had become a staple for those looking to stay abreast of socioeconomics and politics. The format was tight. Proponents and opponents were allowed an opening statement. A panel discussion followed. Questions were taken from the audience, and closing summations wrapped it all up. It was the only radio show printed verbatim in the congressional record, and it won a Peabody Award in 1949. The founder and moderator of the American Forum of the Air, Theodore Granick, today has asked Stephen McCormick to be guest moderator. Mr. McCormick. We are now on the air, and briefly, for the benefit of our at-home audience, we're discussing the Supreme Court segregation decision. A question from Mr. Scanlon. Senator Daniel, would you agree with some of the more intemperate critics of the court's decision to have announced that in an effort to escape the consequences of the abolishment of the separate but equal doctrine by the Supreme Court, they would take the very drastic step of abolishing the public education system in their respective states? No, I would not, Mr. Scanlon. <clears throat> I believe that the public education systems in our 17 states which have separate schools should be continued. I would not be for abolishing our great public school systems. Do you think that if a state actually took that drastic step that it could stay in that status very long? Or would not some enterprising political leader in that state come along and announce that he was for the restoration of the public school system in the state? even if it meant uh, non-segregated education. I imagine we would return to the public school system if it, if it was abolished in uh, one or more of the states. Mr. Griffin, what's your question? Uh, I'd like to ask Senator Douglas a question. In your opinion, do you believe that a majority of Southern Negroes would rather attend non-segregated or segregated school? 
Well, I don't know, but it seems to me that uh, anyone resents the idea that they are inferior because of uh, being me a member of a given race. And if you have uh, uh, separate schools, I think the Supreme Court uh, ruled properly that this gave to the Negroes a feeling of inferiority which would handicap them through life. Well, in, in the South, we, the white students <clears throat> attend separate schools. Do yes, you think they, they have a feeling of inferiority? No, they have a feeling of superiority. Uh, it is the uh, race which was formerly enslaved which uh, feels inferior. And segregation was really a continuation of slavery uh, in an attenuated form. <clears throat> Yeah, that is, it was an inheritance of slavery, I well, should say. Uh, the Southern Association for the Advancement of the Colored People says that in a survey conducted over a seven-month period of time, 72% of the colored people in the South desire segregated schools. And, they, and this association also wants these schools kept separate but equal. Well, I can't believe that that... Uh uh, represents the opinion of most of the Negroes, and uh, in any event, the 28%, assuming these figures are correct, the 28% who do not wish to be segregated uh, should have a chance at uh, decent education. Senator Daniel, uh, I'm sure you yes. want to be here. Do you agree with the senator? I do, I, I do not agree with Senator Douglas. I believe that a great majority of the members of the Negro race would prefer their separate schools in the southern states. Now, also, it is true in the northern states that many Negro citizens had rather attend separate schools. We do have some figures other than a poll. The latest report uh, shows that 85% of all Negro citizens with college degrees in the United States obtain them in the separate southern schools. Well, may I say that so far as college students are concerned, that's because there weren't other opportunities. Well, I beg and your pardon, in, in your northern schools, they could have attended I know, your university. It's very expensive to come north. But it's very Senator expensive. Douglas, do you think that this is primary, primarily a southern problem due to the many references in the decision as to the unequal facilities provided by the South? Well, it's uh, uh, primarily a southern problem because the majority of the Negroes live in the South and 12 of the 17 states which uh, require segregation are southern states, but it is not exclusively a, a southern uh, problem. I want to emphasize that. It's a national problem, and we of the North uh, have no desire to make the South the exclusive whipping boy in this affair. What has happened is that we had the evil institution of slavery. Uh, chattel slavery was abolished, but the slaves and the descendants of slaves were still regarded as an inferior uh, race. Now, uh, we do not believe in the caste system in this country, at least the better part of the American spirit does you, not. You agree with this decision? As I certainly out. do. Well, Senator, we're taught, although I'm not a lawyer, that all decisions handed down by court are based upon judicial history or judicial precedent or by statute or by custom. And this decision... The court seems to me to have merely given their opinion, and this is not based upon any legal reasoning. Well, may I say that uh, it overruled the Plessy versus uh, Ferguson case, but that also was not based on any legal reasoning, because what the Supreme Court said in the Plessy case in 1896 was that uh, the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority 
solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. Senator, with everyone reaching for court decisions here, I'm a little bit afraid that we're going to take too much time. No, what I'm saying is that the decision now is much better psychology than the decision in 1896. It is also a psychological decision. Mr. Green, can you hold just a minute and let's have a question on this side of the aisle for a moment. Mr. Hollander. Senator Daniels, uh, of course, we of ADA have always been... advocates of the end of segregation, so we're we're very happy about this decision, but we realize that there are many good people um, who are not, and who, like yourself, have said, as you said in the Senate the other day, that nevertheless this is the law of the land as it's written, and it's up to the people of the the country to to, uh, comply with it and still preserve the values of our public educational system. Don't you have confidence in the good sense and the goodwill of the people in this country, both North and South, to comply with this decision peacefully and in good faith? Yes, uh, that is my hope, that the decision, we can live under the decision and still maintain our public school systems and peace and order. Now, you understand that there are some people in both races, some agitators uh, in both races who may cause trouble. I hope it will not come. I hope that we can work this matter out properly. Before we get too far away from Senator Douglas's charge, though, that separate schools for the races is a continuation or a aftermath of slavery and tied to it, I just want to remind the senator that the separate school system for colored and white students began in Boston, Massachusetts. And in 1849, we find the first decision saying they are constitutional handed down by a Massachusetts court. Words, and let me South say, lead on the well, well, the South <laughs> simply followed what the northern states had been doing previously in educating their children in separate schools. And the South now, found out it worked so well, we've continued it up to this uh, time. Well, may I break Senator in Douglas, on this Senator point? Senator Douglas wants to make Because I don't want to get into a North-South uh, battle. The time has passed for that. But just historically, the truth is that uh, it started in the North because schools started in the North. Public schools started in the North. And this uh, decision of 1849 was repealed by the people of Massachusetts in 1853 after a gentleman by the name of Charles Sumner carried on agitation on this point. I'm sorry to say that it has taken over a century for our southern friends to uh, imitate the example of Massachusetts in this degree. Uh, but the southern uh, friends wouldn't agree with you, Senator. Let's find out. No, I, I'm simply throw that in to, to uh, and I don't want to start a north-south argument. You but, said uh, you didn't since, want to make the South a whipping boy, Senator. No, and then you <laughs> say that we. But it was Senator we Daniel who started for 100 years. I beg it your was, pardon, Senator, Senator Douglas started, started this when he <laughs> said that segregation was an aftermath of slavery yes. and tied to it. And that is simply not correct, in my opinion, because not only did we find Massachusetts until 1855 with the separate school systems, but we found other states in which we had no slavery. Connecticut, for instance, had the separate school system for many years. Illinois still has some separate well, schools not in many. your state. Not many. Indiana, yeah. Iowa, Kansas, Michigan, Minnesota, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, and Pennsylvania are states that have had for years separate school systems. Well, so it didn't begin right. in the South, and it did not start well, uh, as an aftermath well, of slavery. Let me clear one point up. Senator has a point to clear up. Go ahead. Uh, namely, that uh, it's unfortunate that uh, many sections of the North, which were strong for the abolition of slavery, nevertheless carried over the social attitudes based upon slavery. And that's what I meant when I say that this is a national problem. But we have been gradually 
curing ourselves of this, and we hope that the whole nation will cure ourselves of it. May I say that India has had the caste system for centuries, with the uh, pariahs uh, treated far worse than the Negroes uh, in the black in the uh, in the darkest uh, section of the South. Uh, yet India has abolished the caste system by law and is gradually uh, uh, abolishing it. The six of us are here have worked together on hundreds, perhaps thousands of occasions. And there was always something, to me anyway, that was rather special about CBS and CBS Productions. And I think a large part of that, certainly in my estimation, was due to a man named Norman MacDonald. You're here. He started as a page. He started as a page boy, worked up to an assistant director, a clock watcher, <laughs> later became a, a director on his own, and I remember working on his first show, which was a rebroadcast of an old local show called Romance of the Ranchos, and it was supposed to go on the Western Network. Actually, I think it dead ended in the basement. Nobody ever heard it. <laughs> But at any rate, Norm started that way. He was a man of infinite good taste, of infinite good humor, and was able to somehow or other bring a cast together. Harry, he loved actors, which you right. can't I say. I think it. that's correct. Yeah. He did. He loved actors, and working together, as most of us did almost every week on Gunsmoke in particular, he developed a sort of a rapport which you find only in repertory companies. And I'd like to vote him thanks for what mm -hmm. he did for me. Oh, my. Indeed. I second that. November 1805. We're near present-day Point Ellis, Washington State. You're hearing members of the Corps of Discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. The American explorers have just reached the Pacific coast. Today there's no celebration, only the knowledge that winter is coming. They'll have to make camp. Undersupplied, undermanned, they're worried. But these are men and women who for two years have trekked through unknown lands and waters, meeting inhabitants both friendly and hostile. The party held a vote on where to make camp. Participants included Sacagawea, the Shoshone guide, and York, Clark's African servant. On November 24th, camp moved to the south side of the Columbia River, near what is today Astoria, Oregon. And then they waited. The first harsh winter on the Pacific coast would mirror many yet to come for 19th century settlers. Disease was rampant, 
supplies were short. After the Erie Canal was completed in 1825, joining the Great Lakes to the Atlantic Ocean, it gave Americans easier access to the interior of the country. Soon beaver trappers of the 1820s gave way to religious missionaries and anyone else looking for a new beginning. By the middle of the century, the West was populated with Americans, Spanish, French, Texans, British, Mexicans, Chinese, and those of the many tribes of natives slowly dwindling in size. Two generations after Lewis and Clark, the United States controlled most of its current borders. Inheritance. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the American Legion, presents a story out of that great composite of visions, struggles, and victories of the American past. Our Inheritance. Inheritance was a joint production of NBC and the American Legion at the height of the Red Scare. It first took to the air on April 4, 1954. The American Legion was at the forefront of the Red Channel's pamphlet which outed alleged communist sympathizers. The Legion's connection to the Red Channels had long been disclosed by the time inheritance took to the air. It has been speculated that perhaps both NBC and the Legion hoped to distance themselves from McCarthyism as criticism for his tactics was rapidly growing. 57 episodes were produced featuring the best West Coast radio actors available. The writing staff spanned both coasts and included Ernest Canoy and George Lefferts. This episode on the Lewis and Clark expedition aired on Memorial Day weekend, Sunday, May 30th, 1954 at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. We all share in our inheritance. This month marks the 150th anniversary of the start of a great tale of adventure and daring, the trailblazing expedition of Lewis and Clark in 1804 through an uncharted wilderness to the Pacific Northwest, a vast territory known in history as the Louisiana Purchase. Theirs is a bright and brave chapter in the history of our then new nation. Tonight, we pay tribute to the courage, daring, and diplomacy of two young American leaders, Captains Lewis and Clark. It is the year 1803. President Thomas Jefferson has finished dictating a long letter to his private secretary, Meriwether Lewis. Send a copy of that to Vice President Burr, and that should take care of it. Yes, sir. You can transcribe it later. Right now, I want to talk to you about something I've had on my mind for a long time. Anything wrong, Mr. President? Not at all, not at all. No, as a matter of fact, you're about the best secretary I've had. But uh, how do you feel about it? <laughs> well, I was very honored when you offered me the position, Mr. President. It's been quite an experience. Perhaps. I've noticed your restlessness lately, my young friend. After all, spending an early life in the woods, hunting, trapping, then a short career in the active army might cause a man to champ at the bit once he's saddled down with a routine job like this. Well, I'll admit it lacks in excitement at times, sir, but it's, it's highly interesting. Yes, the inner workings of a government do have their tense moments. But uh, tell me, are you familiar with the territory known as Louisiana? Of course, sir. Hmm. Then you also know that we're under negotiation with France for the purchase of that territory. Yes, sir. 
Now I'd like to pose a very pertinent question. Just what are we buying? Uh, afraid I don't follow you, Miss President. Well, let me put it this way. Uh, the Louisiana Territory is vast, almost unexplored. And I have reason to believe that our negotiations will be successful. That territory will become a part of our nation. But is it good land, rich land, valuable and fur, conducive to settlement? I can appreciate your concern, Mr. President. Well, then you can also appreciate the need for exploration of this territory. It must be charted, must be mapped. Many questions concerning it must be answered. Oh, then you, you propose such an exploration at this time, sir? I do. In the past, I've helped instigate a few attempts at exploring our western regions. They failed. But I propose one now that I hope and pray will not fail. You sit back, Lewis. You're about to fall off the edge of your chair. Oh, <laughs> oh of course. <laughs> I knew such a conversation would excite you, my young friend. But from my observations during these two years that you've assisted me, excitement of youth is not your only attribute. Courage, honesty, much daring are a part of your composition. Lewis, the leadership of the expedition is yours for the asking. I'm overwhelmed, sir. Uh, well, of course, if you don't want the responsibility... Oh, no, I... sir. I mean, uh, yes. <laughs> this is so wonderful, I don't know what to say. That's uh, quite some time away, my boy. Perhaps your power of speech will return in time for you to say goodbye. <laughs> I'm sure it will, sir. I want you to take a new look at books, study for a while, botany and so on. Then we'll select your men and outfit the party. Speaking of men, sir, may I make a suggestion? By all means, it's your expedition. Recently in the Army, I renewed a boyhood friendship with William Clark. We often talked of adventure, and Will is probably as qualified as I am to lead such a party. Clark. In relation to George Rogers Clark? Uh, his younger brother, sir. There is no one with whom I'd rather share my command. Well, he comes from good stock, and with such an enthusiastic recommendation from you, how can I refuse? Uh, you write him and see what he thinks of the idea. I will, sir, right away. But I think I know what he'll say. This is the answer to a dream. Dan, may it answer all our dreams, Lewis. And I wish you the best of luck. William Clark was notified and quickly accepted. But there were months of preparation ahead. Nine years later, the Armed Forces Radio and TV Service commissioned a series specifically intended for service people and delegates. It was called Horizons West and told the remarkable 8,000-mile journey of Lewis and Clark's expedition in 13 parts. John Anderson was chosen to be William Clark, while the role of Meriwether Lewis went to radio veteran Harry Bartell. The American West. Once it could have been the British, Spanish, or even the Russian West. It became American primarily because of the explorations of two young army officers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Their pioneering journey stands as one of the great achievements in the history of the United States. Hello, Sergeant. Welcome back, sir. 
Hope you had a tolerable trip. Well, I took a new trail from Detroit and ran into an Indian situation that looked tight for a little while, but you know me, Sergeant. Paymaster 1st Infantry can't let the men down. Here are my bags. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Who won the election? Jefferson. Noble Sir Thomas, the champion of the common man. Good old Mr. Jefferson. He made it. He made it. Republicans are all alike. No control. What was that, Sergeant? Are you criticizing me or Mr. Jefferson? Just giving an opinion, sir. What this country needs is a ruling class. Sergeant, you're an idiot. Three cheers for Tom Jefferson. What's going on here? I'm trying to work. Oh, it's you, Lewis. Yes, sir. The sergeant just told me Mr. Jefferson was elected president. And you're letting everybody know you're friends with him, is that it? I voted for him, if that's what you mean. No, not exactly, Captain. There's a letter for you from him in my office. Come in. A letter from Mr. Jefferson? Looks to me like a personal letter. Well, our families are neighbors in Virginia. Here. It came by special messenger the day before yesterday. Thank you, sir. It's a surprise to hear from him when he's busy taking over such a big job. Well, Captain, good news or bad? Dear Lieutenant Lewis, <laughs> I'll have to tell him I made captain now, sir. In view of my recent election to the presidency of the United States, I find that I will require a private secretary. Your tact and social adaptability, your knowledge of the Western country of the Army, has rendered it desirable for public as well as private purposes that you should be engaged in that office. If you accept, please obtain approbation from General Wilkinson and repair to the presidential mansion, Washington City. What do you think of that, Colonel? I am to be the new private secretary to the president. I don't understand it, Lewis. You, a secretary? Why not, sir? Look, your written reports are any indication. You don't have a hand. You have a rooster scratch, and you can't spell. Come, Captain. Why would the president want you for a secretary? Very simple, Colonel. He likes me. Horizons West, the continued story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, with Harry Bartell as Meriwether Lewis and John Anderson as William Clark, listen to Chapter One, Mr. Jefferson's Dream. Years before he was elected president in 1800, Thomas Jefferson had dreamed of exploring the unknown lands west of the Mississippi River. Unknown lands that were said to contain wonders such as a mountain of pure salt and prehistoric mammoths. Now that he had been inaugurated, Jefferson was in a position to realize his dreams by sending what he liked to call a core of discovery into the West. Because of certain political and commercial rivalries, such an expedition would have to be kept secret as long as possible and would need superlative leadership. After considering a number of young men, Jefferson finally selected the leader, Meriwether Lewis, and had ensured the secrecy of the choice by offering him the job of private secretary to the president. My name is Meriwether Lewis, and I'm making what the colonel has called rooster scratches in my journal. In March of 1801, I was 26 years old, a captain in the 1st Infantry and paymaster for the regiment. I liked army life, even though being paymaster meant I had to travel constantly through the wilderness parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, 
and along the Mississippi frontier in order to pay the scattered troops of the regiment. I managed to make the rounds about twice a year. Anyway, on March 6, 1801, the day after I received my letter from Mr. Jefferson, I left the Army Depot in Pittsburgh on my way to Washington, the new federal city. The spring rains made the roads a slew of mud, and it took me over two weeks to reach the White House. Mr. Jefferson had gone for a short vacation to Monticello, but he left instructions for me to move into his quarters, where I would receive free food and lodging and a salary of $600 per year, much better than captain's pay, I might add. So I unpacked and tried to get settled before the president returned. That show took on a personality of its own, very much like Gunsmoke did. A lot of the same actors worked, and this was a sort of a CBS group more than anything else. At that time, about that time, I think they figured there were approximately 1,500 members of AFRA, and about 400 of us did all the work. I think that would be a maximum at 400. 300 more than I know in my own case, I was doing at one time and another as high as five shows a day, having somebody rehearse for me at NBC. See, they were all very close to the studios. Do two or three one-man families. (laughs) (laughs) Betty, I did Betty. Mary, no! God, let's let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Good evening, this is George Herman recording in Washington. In the McCarthy Army hearings, committee counsel Jenkins moved today from direct examination to cross-examination of Roy M. Cohn. The top McCarthy aide continued calm and cool as Mr. Jenkins switched from his friendly to his unfriendly role. Cohn's answers were quiet and deliberate, and they formed a backdrop against which a series of dramatic and important clashes subsequently took place. On Friday, May 28th, as beaches and public parks opened for Memorial Day weekend, Families hopped in their cars, turned on the radio dial, and heard the continuing testimony of McCarthy's attorney, Roy Cohn, during the Army McCarthy hearings. CBS Radio was there. The statements had security laws carefully drawn up to protect the nation are the responsibility of the executive branch of the government. It said they could not be violated by any individual who might seek to set himself above the law or the President of the United States. That news soon percolated into the hearings. 
And for a detailed report on the day's events, here is Bill Costello. The morning session began with committee counsel Jenkins concluding his direct examination of Roy Cohn. His final questions, dealing with Cohn's charges against the Army, took up the Perez case, the case of the major in the dental corps who was given an honorable discharge after pleading the Fifth Amendment. Cohn said he began warning John Adams in December about Perez and then brought the story up to mid-February when Perez was questioned by the McCarthy subcommittee. He went on... On the 18th, Mr. Adams was in New York when Major Perez appeared in public session. The 18th of what month? February, and that's the date Mr. Adams gave me back that money, sir. Paid me that money. Then uh, General Zwicker appeared that afternoon, and I won't go into that other than to say uh, General Zwicker had been cooperative with representatives of the staff, a representative of the staff of the subcommittee who had privately interviewed General Zwicker. Cohn played a major role in McCarthy's crusade. He helped create the Lavender Scare, which claimed overseas communists blackmailed closeted government employee homosexuals into passing on secrets, convinced that the employment of homosexuals was now a threat to national security. President Eisenhower signed an executive order on April 29, 1953, that banned homosexuals from working for the federal government. And he just didn't give any answers, just was quiet about the whole thing. Cohn also saw that colleague G. David Shine received special treatment when he was drafted to the U.S. Army in 1953. He contacted military officials from the Secretary of the Army down to Shine's company commander and demanded that Shine be given light duties, extra leave, and exemption from overseas assignment. Quiet and not give the committee the information. That did not help relations between Senator McCarthy and Mr. Adams at that point, and the senator was quite annoyed about it. It was this behavior that hastened McCarthy's downfall, as during these hearings, both Cohn and McCarthy claimed the Army was holding Shine hostage to squelch McCarthy's communist investigations. Cohn testified from May 27th through June 2nd. I thought in justice to General Zwicker and the officers involved that the proper person to produce was the man who had given the orders silencing General Zwicker and these other officers and let that man tell why he had ordered them to defy this subcommittee. Mr. Adams did not agree, and I remember we got into a, it was supposed to be a short conversation, but we got into an extended discussion of the Perez case, in the course of which I told Mr. Adams that I had warned him about that case for a period of months and that he had done nothing about it. He admitted that. He said, I think he had written one letter or made one phone call and had forgotten to follow it up or hadn't followed it up. Then I took up the question of the honorable discharge and Mr. Adams said, well, he just wasn't gonna delay it and he didn't delay it and that was that. Uh, and he said, anyway, you seem to think the proof on Perez was awfully strong, I don't. On cross-examination, Jenkins reverted to the testimony of Army witnesses, attempting to bring out the opposing versions of various incidents. He asked Mr. Cohn about a conversation with Army Secretary Stevens in the latter's office October 2nd, and Cohn, taking issue with Stevens' testimony, gave this account. Mr. Stevens stated that Shine was going to take basic training like everybody else, that right after basic training, Mr. Stevens had 
planned out an assignment for Shine, whereby Shine was going to be in attendance as an observer at various intelligence schools of the Army for the purpose of reviewing textbooks and other matters and report directly to Mr. Stevens on that subject. Uh, this discussion followed a talk with Mr. Stevens on that occasion in which Mr. Stevens told us that he had been greatly disturbed by the General Partridge testimony over the use of communist, pro-communist literature and communist indoctrination literature by army intelligence and in these schools. Mr. Stevens also told us that a day or two before October 2nd, he had, he, Mr. Stevens, had had a long talk with a major, whose name he had gotten from us, I believe, teaching at an army intelligence school, I believe out at Halliburton, Maryland, that from the outline the major gave him as to the type of literature they were using, from the Partridge situation and other reports which he had gotten, he, the secretary, was very much disturbed about the whole situation and that he was looking forward to using Shine to his great advantage in going over these text materials and going to these schools and reporting to Mr. Stevens. Uh, I believe, sir, it's, I have no clear recollection, but it's perfectly possible or probable that I ask Mr. Stevens at that point if during the basic training, wherever that was, some arrangement could be made for staff members to contact Mr. Shine in case of an emergency or in case there was something which we might need for him. That, uh, to the best of my recollection, is the substance of what occurred on that occasion. And there are some prior discussions with Mr. Stevens about this Shine assignment, which we have not covered. If you want to, I will. If you don't, I But on October 2nd, you did suggest to him that there might be occasions when you would want to consult with Mr. Shine about committee work. That's perfectly possible, sir, and I do not deny it. So, Mr. Cohn, uh, that makes some eight or ten times up to that time, October 2nd that you had talked to somebody in the Pentagon about David Shine being made available to you, doesn't it? Or about a commission party. Near the end of the morning session, Mr. Jenkins asked for Mr. Cohn's version of the angry episode at Fort Monmouth, October 20th, when Cohn was excluded from a secret laboratory and was charged with saying he would wreck the army in reprisal. Jenkins asked him, well, you heard Lieutenant Ballou testify. Colonel Ballou, I did, sir. Colonel Ballou. And I read further from his testimony, Mr. Cohn, same page of the transcript, quoting, quoting Mr. Cohn. I don't understand why you let communists work in here and you won't let me in. Did you say that? That sounds a lot more like me, sir. Sounds a lot like you. That sounds a lot more like me now, than the previous thing. Yes, sir. That <laughs> declaration of war you mean doesn't sound like Roy Cohn when he's mad? No, sir. What sounds like me when I'm mad is they let communists in here and they don't let us in. Yes, sir. Quoting further. Let's see now if this sounds like you. I have been cleared for classified information. That sounds like me, and that was the Well, fact. had you been cleared for classified information, Mr. Cole? Not only that, sir, I had a specific secret clearance from the Defense Department. 
I have access to FBI files when, the, when, uh, when I want, want them. Did you say that? Colonel Ballou is a little bit mistaken in terminology, sir, and I would like what, to... What, what then was the terminology about the FBI files? I don't recall the exact statement. I can tell you this, Mr. Jenkins. I did not say that I currently have access to FBI files or that I can see them whenever I want them. Neither did Colonel Ballou say that now, Mr. Cohen. Get his word. What does he say? I have access to FBI right, files sir. when I want them. Did All you right, say sir. that? I did not say I have access to FBI files when I want them. Then I ask you what you did say All about right, sir. the FBI and, files. And this is important to me, and I hope I may be permitted on this one point if, to explain. If, if, if anytime I cut you off, Mr. Cohn, I don't mean to you, do it. You do not cut me off, right, Very Mr. well. Very well. You, you call me down. I, now, uh, what did you say about the FBI no, files? No right or reason to call you down, sir. I want to answer every question. On this particular point, uh, it is important. I did not say, and I could not have said, that I have access to FBI files. Because, sir, since I have come with this committee, I have not had access to FBI files, and I have never seen an FBI file. And I would like to make that very clear under oath to end any statement by anybody that I, while with this committee, have seen access, have seen FBI files or have had them. That is not true. Before I came with the subcommittee, sir, I was with the Department of Justice for a number of years dealing with prosecutions of communists and subversives and spies. I did have access to FBI files. I did use FBI files extensively. Were it not for FBI files, we could not have obtained a single conviction. Ladies and gentlemen, during the next 30 minutes, you will hear Bing Crosby, Frank Lovejoy, Agnes Moorhead, and Walter Houston. As WNBC brings you transcribed, a special Memorial Day edition of Anthology. At 3 p.m. on Sunday, May 30th, 1954, Anthology signed on NBC. Directed by John Malcolm Brennan, produced by Steve White, and announced by Harry Fleetwood, Anthology offered dramatic readings of famous and lesser-known plays. Memorial Day weekend's episode featured Agnes Moorhead reading Barbara Fritchie and Frank Lovejoy and Bing Crosby performing The Man Without a Country. This is Fleetwood. Every Sunday at 3, WNBC, in conjunction with the Poetry Center of the YW and YMHA, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue in Manhattan, brings you Anthology, a selection of readings of poets past and present, and the music to accompany their poetry. This afternoon, as a tribute to Memorial Day, we're to hear two of America's best-known and best-loved patriotic poems, and an equally well-known American story in verse form, read by Bing Crosby. On this Memorial Day of 1954, we have poetry spanning our nation's history from the earliest times to the present day, from verses and dedication to our earliest settlers, 
to a story and verse which can very well serve as a symbol of that precious freedom for which so many American men and women have fought and died down through the long centuries. We begin with a poem of the birth of our country. Here is the distinguished American actress, Miss Agnes Moorhead, in a dramatic reading of The Landing of the Pilgrim Fathers. The breaking waves dashed high on a stern and rock-bound coast. And the woods against a stormy sky their giant branches tossed. And the heavy night hung dark the hills and waters o'er. When a band of exiles moored their bark on a wild New England shore. Not as the conqueror comes, they the true-hearted came. Not with the roll of stirring drums and the trumpets that sing of fame. Not as the flying come, in silence and in fear. They shook the depths of the desert's gloom with their hymns of lofty cheer. Amidst the storm they sang, and the stars heard, and the sea, and the sounding aisles of the dim woods rang to the anthem of the free. The ocean eagle soared from his nest by the white waves foam, and the rocking pines of the forest roared. This was their welcome home. There were men with hoary hair amidst that pilgrim band. Why had they come to wither there, away from their childhood's land? There was woman's fearless eye lit by her deep love's truth. There was manhood's brow serenely high and the fiery heart of youth. What sought they thus afar? Bright jewels of the mind, the wealth of sea, the spoils of war. They sought a faith pure shrine. I call it holy ground. The soil where first they trod. They left unstained what there they found. Freedom to worship God. portion of this special Memorial Day program, we're to listen to The Man Without a Country, 
a poetic narrative by Jean Holloway, based on Edward Everett Hale's immortal story, and narrated by Bing Crosby, with Frank Lovejoy as Philip Nolan. Many of us have heard this story before. It's been read to us by grammar school teachers, or declaimed, perhaps, by stammering fellow students, in classrooms distracted by spring whispering at an open window, or by an autumn kaleidoscope of whirling leaves. We heard it as a text or a lesson. We learned it long before we could conceive of what it would be like to be banished forever from the land of our birth. Told in dramatic form, the story of Philip Nolan takes on a new stature, a greater depth, a stronger meaning. We feel that upon an American holiday such as this, it is highly appropriate to retell this fine American story, and especially in Gene Holloway's exciting radio verse. And now, The Man Without a Country. Order in the court. Order in the court. The attorney for the state will kindly continue. Mr. Nolan, is it not true that you are part of a conspiracy to destroy the government of the United States? No, that is not true. That is not true, I tell you. Do you dare to deny your friendship with Aaron Burr? No, I don't deny that. But I do deny all your accusations of treason. Lieutenant Nolan, Aaron Burr has shown himself to be an enemy of the United States government. As an American officer, your country's enemies are your enemies. By your association with Aaron Burr, you betray the uniform you wear, the flag you follow, the country you profess to serve. That is true, is it not, Mr. Nolan? No, it is not true. It is not true. You still dare to defend your association with Aaron Burr? I don't think it needs defending. I only talk to the man. You don't think it needs defending. You need say no more, Lieutenant Nolan. I rest my case, Your Honor. Philip Nolan, rise and face the court. Philip Nolan, is there anything you wish to say to show that you have always been faithful to the United States? The United States? Damn the United States! I wish I may never hear of the United States again! Who was that man? Who would dare utter such treason? Let me tell you a story, America, about you and your growing. Not a story of a national hero, but of Philip Nolan who severed a bond before he knew its value. Listen to the story of the man without a country. Think back. Way back to the 1800s. Remember? You were still an adolescent then. You were proud of being a nation of 17 states. And you were beginning to speak grandly of adding Michigan, Indiana, and Mississippi. And becoming 20. Zealous old Tom Jefferson was in the White House. Down in the south was a man named Aaron Burr and a man named Philip Nolan. They say now, well, now that history has sifted the facts and weighed the evidence, they say Philip Nolan was as fine an officer as any in the Western Division. Oh, he was a little more hot-headed than some, a little swifter to anger than others, a little too quick sometimes about getting his two cents of opinion in, but he was not alone in this. There were many dashing young gallants like him, ready to die for a kiss as a flag. And Philip Nolan might have gone to his final sleep among the vine-covered homes of the dead in Orleans, as quietly as any of them, had a star not crossed his path one night. <laughs> <laughs> 
Mr. Nolan, I'm Aaron Burr. I'm told you're a young man of remarkable promise. I should like to talk to you about your future. Why, thank you, sir. I hardly know what to say. Thank you very much. A star comes that way sometimes. Sudden, blinding, dazzling. Aaron Burr came as a disguised conqueror. Rumor had it that there was an army behind him and an empire before. But that first day in Orleans, though Philip Nolan wasn't to know it for a long time yet, he became the man without a country. It was only a step from Aaron Burr's side to a trial for treason. The United States versus Philip Nolan. He was bewildered, deeply hurt, embittered. Above all else, he was young. An older man would have checked his anger. A traitor would have been wise enough to hide his feelings, but Philip Nolan was neither a wise man nor a traitor. A moment's silence. And then those words that were to echo forever through his life. I wish I may never hear of the United States again! I wish I may never hear of the United States again. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. filled the courtroom, shivered against the walls. No one spoke, no word fell to combat those other words. Half the officers in the room had served through the revolution. They had fought their way, starved and frozen through endless bitter months, so that one day a people could say, this is my country. Judge and the jury rose and left the court wordlessly. No one else stirred. Someone in the back of the room sighed and someone else coughed, that was all. Fifteen minutes went by like fifteen years before the judge returned. Prisoner, hear the sentence of the court. The court decides, subject to the approval of the president, that you shall have your wish. You will never hear the name of the United States again. It was the fall of 1807. It would be 1863 before he heard her name again. The leaves would grow red in Maryland soon. They'd be piled along the Potomac for burning. Their smoke would spiral into lace against the November skies. They'd be tapping the trees for maple sugar in the Vermont woods, and the New England housewives would gather in their spiced kitchens to prepare the Thanksgiving puddings. The Cape Cod fishermen would go out in the misty dawn for their nets, and the harvest would be a bright promise on the Indiana hillsides. The Blue Ridge and the Allegheny and the Rockies would pull the snow up over their shoulders and settle down for the winter. And the Mississippi would go slipping on through the heart of America. There would be hearth fires and Christmas trees and there'd be dances. There would be church service and wedding ceremonial and baptismal. But not for Philip Nolan. His was the sea and the bitterness of salt on his lips and no port at evenings. And in one sudden heart-stabbing moment... Philip Nolan knew what he had lost. Sir, you will receive from Lieutenant Neal the person of Philip Nolan, late a lieutenant in the United States Army. You will take the prisoner on board your ship and keep him there with such precautions as shall prevent his escape. You will provide him with such quarters, rations, and clothing as would be proper for an officer of his late rank. But under no circumstances is he ever to hear of his country or see any information regarding it. So Philip Nolan walked the decks of the seven seas and he thought about America. But he never asked about her. He talked to his shipmates about the weather, about the sea, about all things but home. 
In foreign ports, where he was rarely permitted to go ashore, he filled his days with reading. But in the books and the papers given him, there was no mention of America. For him, she was only a dream that had ceased existing. He was a ghost among his companions, drifting from port to port, listening to a word that filled his heart that reached him in the wind that sighed from the rigging. But the waves whispered through the midnight. One word. America. The grass is blue in Kentucky this spring. Wouldn't you like to ride through it with the earth hard and firm under your horse's feet? Think of it. Earth under you. The flower girls are in the streets of Orleans now. It's almost time for the Mardi Gras. Remember the girl you kissed at the Mardi Gras? The fields are white with cotton now. The slaves are singing. What would you give to hear their voices? The snow is thick and white in New England. They are riding through it to the Christmas parties. Can't you hear the sleigh bells? How long is it since you heard sleigh bells? Leave me alone. I can't stand thinking anymore. Oh, God, let me stop remembering. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. I wish I may never hear of the United States again. The court decides, subject to the approval of the president, that you shall have your way. No! 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 The men were kind enough. On Sunday afternoons when they sat on deck, smoking and chatting, they invited Nolan to join them. He had a pleasant voice. Sometimes they asked him to read to them. One day the reading sessions came to an abrupt end. Here, Nolan, let's have something out of this. The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Walter Scott, eh? Yeah, it's a new book the captain sent down. He says there's some nice stuff in it. Well, let's have a look at it. Breathe there the man with soul so dead, who never to himself hath said, this is my own, my native land, uh, whose heart hath ne'er within him burned, as home his footsteps he hath turned from wandering on a foreign strand. If such there breathe, uh, someone else finish it. I'm something to attend to. Philip Nolan could never find peace. Ships docked, set sail, then went home on leave. He watched in wordless agony. He thought of candlelight on warm, gracious tables, of gardens where a man could crumble the rich soil in his fingers, of linens whipping on the clotheslines and the friendly smells of kitchens. He thought of moonlight on hair that was soft as silk to the touch, of eyes liquid in the starlight, of lips velvet smooth and ripe for kissing. He thought of arms opened wide to gather in the returning sailor and one special voice that would say, Welcome home. He thought of perfume and music and the rustle of silk. He was young. There was a fierce hunger in him. Then one night in the Mediterranean, some ladies were invited aboard for a ship's ball. All that was young in Philip Nolan died that night. As he stood on deck, looking at the girl he had loved a lifetime ago. Anne. Anne Emery. Philip Nolan. This is a surprise. You're looking splendid, Philip. The sea evidently agrees with you. I've forgotten how lovely you are. You must have forgotten many things. It's almost impossible to believe finding your way out here. 
I'm on my way home. I've been visiting in France. I tried to see you before I left. And they wouldn't let me see anyone. I understand. I was very busy at the time, anyhow. I was married soon after you left. Married? Yes, of course. Hadn't you heard? I have a little boy now. A little boy? He must be very happy. I am, Philip. So strange that we should meet again way out here. I'm a little sorry we did meet. I'd forgotten you. It was better that way. I loved you very much. I loved you and I lost you. And everything else I loved in one mad moment. Oh, my dear. I think we should get back to the dancers. Yeah, of course. And would you tell me just one thing? What do you uh, hear from home? Home, Mr. Nolan? I thought you were the man who never wanted to hear of home again. I beg your pardon. Good night, Anne. Philip Nolan knew in that moment how alone he was. One man with only the sea for the rest of his life and one nameless port at the end of it. The days became weeks, and the weeks years that marched across his forehead and left him old. His eyes were deep pools of loneliness, his heart completely empty. No one knew until the day he was dying how deep his hurt had gone. No one knew until that day when they entered his room for the first time and found it a shrine to America. Stars and stripes were draped around a picture of Washington, and he had painted a majestic eagle with its foot clasping the whole globe. At the foot of his bed was a great map of the United States, drawn from memory. Here, Captain. You see, I, I have a country. Yes, I see, Nolan. How do you feel? Is there anything I can do for you? Captain, I'm dying. I'll never see my country again. But there's not a man on this ship or in all the United States that loves you as I do. Would you... Would you tell me about America? Tell you about America? How can I begin to tell you about America? He had left America in 1807. It was 1863. War had come and gone in 1812, and Francis Scott Key had sat on a British battleship and written a national anthem. Jackson had taken the Florida Territory. A new flag had been raised in Washington with 13 alternate stripes and 20 stars. Nine presidents had been in the White House. The Monroe Doctrine had been born, the cornerstone of American foreign policy. The continents of the Western Hemisphere are henceforth not to be considered as subjects for future colonization by any of the European powers. The United States had begun to gather themselves into a nation. It is not the states, but the people of the nation who have made the Union. It is, sir, the people's constitution, the people's government, made for the people, answerable to the people. Tell him about America. Tell him about Peter Cooper's steam locomotive, the Tom Thumb drawing its first train of cars over 23 miles of the B&O Railroad. Tell them about America. Andrew Jackson had moved the Indians west of the Mississippi. Arkansas, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa had joined the nation. 
Battle of the Alamo had been fought in Texas and gold discovered in California. The new nation had spanned two oceans, and in the White House was the president whose words were the voice the of the new nation. Of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Tell him about America, the power, the color, the strength, the beauty, the tears, the triumphs. Tell him so that he knows the glory he thrust aside. She's a great nation, Captain. A great nation. Yes, Nolan, a great nation. Nolan. Nolan. And so his last thought was of his country. Before they lowered him into the sea, they draped the flag of the United States over his coffin. How proud that would have made him. The captain intoned the last rites. The bugler played taps. And the ceremony was over. Men, we found this paper in Nolan's things. Bury me in the sea. It has been my home, and I love it. But will someone not set up a stone for my memory at Fort Adams or at Orleans so that my disgrace will not follow me through eternity? Say on it, in memory of Philip Nolan, lieutenant in the army of the United States. He loved his country as no other man has ever loved her. But no man deserved less at her hands. We will do as he wished. And so, although the sea claimed him, his soul would know the feeling of land again. The flowers would be near him and the trees and the earth of America. He would know the seasons and the pulsing life of the nation. There would be a flag over him and the knowledge of belonging. And thus, the man without a country came home to America. Man Without a Country, a poetic narrative by Gene Holloway, based on Edward Everett Hale's immortal story, and narrated by Bing Crosby with Frank Lovejoy as Philip Nolan. On Anthology, Memorial Day, 1954. Anthology would air into June of 1955 when it was canceled in favor of the debuting Monitor. For more information on that, Tune into Breaking Walls, episode 116. And so, Anthology number 13, transcribed and dated Sunday, May 30th. Next week, our guest will be Marion Rooney of Cademan Records, who will tell us the story behind their famous recordings of contemporary American poets and readers such as Herd Hatfield, Joe Van Fleet, and Frank Silvera. With her, Miss Rooney will bring the newest Cademan recording of Judith Anderson, reading the poetry of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Anthology comes to you with the cooperation of the YW and YMHA Poetry Center, 92nd Street and Lexington Avenue, John Milcom Brennan, Director. The program is produced by Steve White, written and directed by Draper Lewis. And now this is Fleetwood wishing you good luck and good reading. Don't forget to join us next Sunday at 3 for another edition of Anthology on your community stations in New York. Thank you.
when we finally did the last suspense show in Hollywood, and it was all the people that you know who've been on every show you've ever heard from Hollywood in the old days, and we were all sitting around, and finally Virginia Gregg, who was one of the great ladies of radio, and she looked around, and she said, isn't it awful? She said, isn't it awful? She said, oh, God, if only television was going out and radio was coming in. <laughs> and it is true, too. We all felt that. Next time on Breaking Walls, we finish our miniseries in June of 1954 and mourn the end of an era with The Road to Happiness, Crime Classics, The Bill Harris and Alice Faye Show, The Six Shooter, The Lux Radio Theater, Suspense, and Jack Benny. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and Life Magazine. On the interview front, Harley Bear, Jim Bowles, Mercedes McCambridge, Carlton E. Morse, and Russell Thorson spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Harry Bartell, Hyman Brown, Lawrence Dobkin and Virginia Gregg spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to Spurvac.com. Vincent Price spoke to Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear this interview at goldenage-wtic.org. Bob Hope spoke to Johnny Carson. And Andy Devine spoke to Betty Rogie. Selected music featured in today's episode was Once I Had a Secret Love by Dolores Watson, The Battle Cry of Freedom by Jacqueline Schwab, Bare Necessities by Matthias Gold, Jay Unger, and John Kirk, Morning Prayer by Matthias Gold and Ken Littlehawk, and Locke Lomond, arranged for choir by Musica Intima. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurback. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 128 will finish our 1954 miniseries as numerous shows face sponsored disinterest and network cancellations. This episode will be available beginning June 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. 
You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers. And support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until June 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 127, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.